Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dan for Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers, here to share the easiest way to buy tires. Come to Dobbs. With the best tire brands and the biggest inventory, you'll get your tires the same day at the lowest price, guaranteed. Next time you need tires, get into Dobbs. This is the BK and Ferrario Podcast, powered by I Promise. Now here's BK and Ferrario. look at it and you take away the 14 runs on the other two days and you take away the result of it, the processes of all three days were eerily similar. The old hit them where they ain't, balls fall through, get all that. You know, we did hit, you know, three home runs a day. We scored 14 runs based on yesterday. I mean, there were some balls that were absolutely crushed yesterday that they didn't get out of a typically a fairly hitter friendly ballpark. Okay, so we got to talk about the Cardinals' offense. You guys ready for this? Yeah, they're really good. An honest conversation about where the Cardinals stand right now offensively. As long as it's positive. Oh, that's not going to... I'm all about positivity. There are some positives to speak of with the Cardinals' offense. Are there? There are, absolutely. Because in three games this season, their three highest scoring games... They have scored 34 runs. They scored 11, 14, and 9 runs in those three games, respectively. And their other 12 games combined, they've scored 37 runs. All right, that's good. (laughs) It ain't great, boys. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We'll get into the Blues coming up in 15 minutes. I know Alex Ferrario has some takes. So what you're saying, though, is that the Cardinals' offense is streaky. The Cardinals' offense is very similar in some ways to the Blues, in that the Blues forget sometimes that there's a second period that they have to play. STL team strong. The Cardinals will go in a three game series, one game where their offense is amazing, one game where their offense literally doesn't step up to the plate, and one game where it's maddening, maddeningly inefficient. They get 12 guys on base, and one of them gets in, and I don't know how it happens. And guys, all of the numbers in terms of the fancy stats are still there. What you heard from Mike Schiltz after the game, he's not wrong. The Cardinals are fifth in barrel rate. They're right up there in hard hit rate. They're third in average exit velocity. But they're 15th in batting average and 10th in slugging percentage. And if you take away their top three games this year in terms of like their big time outburst offensively, the offense has stunk. And so how do I reconcile these two things, Alex? How do I reconcile the fact that if you look at the fancy stats, this offense is amazing. And if I look at the traditional stats, They're average at best offensively. Well, I I guess for the first time in the history of this show, I am about to become Tanner Hendrickson. You're going to be really positive? No, I'm going to become really old because the nerdy numbers, 
don't matter. They really don't. We can sit here post games as much as we want and say, well, these guys are crushing the ball. Yeah. And three games out of what is it? 14 right now? 15. You're hitting double digit runs. I don't like those percentages. I mean, you can hit the ball as hard as you want, but at the end of the day, if you're not getting guys on base, you're not going to win games. Plain and simple. That's how the game goes. And if you look at it yesterday, guys, they did not have a runner in scoring position. Yep. So we can talk about how Matt Carpenter is hitting the ball 95 percentile of hard hit rate and the barrel rate for Dylan Carlson is off the charts. But if they're not finding grass, well, we're not going to worry about it right now. It just seems like and this is just watching the game. It's either balls in the stands or it's strikeouts. They are a truly modern offense in every possible way. They take their walks. They didn't get enough of them this weekend, but in general, they've been pretty good at taking walks. They hit for a decent amount of power. They do hit the ball really hard, as hard as any team in baseball. They're third this year in hard hit percentage. They're really good at that. And by the way, the teams that are up there, those are the teams that you want to be surrounded by offensively. It's like the Dodgers, Padres, and Cardinals, which makes a whole lot of sense. The problem is it's not falling. Like, and this is what I have a really hard time with, and I I would love to talk to somebody about this who understands it at a higher degree than I do because hitting the ball hard inherently is a good thing. If I told you, Alex, a guy had a loud out 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we would have all agreed, like, okay, yeah, maybe that'll come back around for him. Well, and it paid off for Matt Carpenter in that year, too. I, I mean, I'm not being sarcastic there. Yeah. I mean, the guy hit, what, 40 bombs because they were saying all of the statistics are going in his favor. I mean, is it bad luck right now? Is that what we're going to attribute it to? Kind of, but how long does it have to be bad luck before we just say, okay, there's something more happening here. Like maybe it is that hard hit rate matters, but only to a certain degree when it's happening in this way. And the Cardinals are doing it that way. And so it doesn't matter for them while it does matter for the Padres and the Dodgers. I don't know, man. There's got to be something more to this because... We're 15 games into the season, and it's not correcting. It's the same thing happening repeatedly. I think as much as we talk about the the hard hit rate and that these guys are hitting the ball really hard, they're also striking out just as much as they're hitting the ball hard. I mean, 10 strikeouts yesterday, guys. That's more than they had hits. Actually, it's like triple the amount of times that they got hits. That is a problem. Like, if I look at the top three, the guys who have been Top four, I guess I'll say, because Yachty's up there. Mm-hmm. They've been the best this season. It is very rare that you are going to see a one for 15 afternoon for those guys. But then you look at the bottom of the order and you got strikeout, 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 strikeout. But That's the Cardinals problem. aren't that bad this year in strikeouts. Like they're middle of the pack this year in strikeouts. So that's. That's the thing that I'm having a hard time with, too, is there's there's no real indicators here to suggest the Cardinals offense should stink. There's nothing. The walk rate's fine. The strikeout rate. I know that yesterday it looked bad, but on the season, if you look at it kind of in the wash, they're literally 15th in all of baseball and strikeout rate. And that's including the American League. You should compare them only to the National League because pitchers are pitching or hitting. I don't know. Tanner, are, are you seeing something? What do, What am I missing here? Because it's not making sense to me. It's not making a lot of sense to me either, because although, yes, I do uh, us saying standing here and saying, yes, the hard hit percentage should lead to base hits. There is the factor of, you know, now that the teams are so specific with their data, they can position you the way you want. They can shift you. They can move the they move the outfielders around. I, part of that to me is that maybe some of this isn't bad luck. You're hitting into the other team's hand, basically. 
but on the other hand, I look at it, the strikeouts, like you said, middle of the pack, that's a good sign for me. If you're middle of the pack in strikeouts and you're hitting the ball hard, that's a good sign. I, I think part of it is it's not falling, and I think part of it, too, is just some frustration is starting to build with, with this team. Yesterday was the first time I looked at that offense, and I said there's no real shot in this one. And maybe part of that was because Nola was just dealing, but... I don't know. It is baffling to me how this Cardinals team is not hitting the ball when they are squaring it up as well, much as they are. How many times have we said that this season? I mean, you can't use the excuse of, oh, well, this guy's dealing. Aaron Nola is a top pitcher in the league, but then you also got the guy, I don't even remember his name, Fetty from Washington, yeah. who was pitching. I mean, Fetty he was, up. Fetty, he was <laughs> dealing. I mean, we could go through this every guy, every game and be like, oh, well, this guy's dealing. Oh, well, this guy's, I mean, look, the guys that they hit the ball off of, I'll go back to it. Luis Castillo, they were crushing the ball. I'll give them that. Although that was the first game of the season and it was really cold out. They hit a guy who's an ace for their club. But Steven Strasburg was just placed on the injured list for the, the Washington Nationals. And, he and that was, was one of the only games that the Cardinals offense has looked good in this year. So the games, which, which is it's a telling, telling. So the guys that they're hitting, they're either hitting bullpens or they're hitting guys who are not on the top of their game or with circumstances in the games are affecting them. But when it's guys like this, guys that you have to beat, they're not being able to perform. And for me, I was watching that game yesterday. And the first thing I thought of was the NLDS where the Cardinals destroyed the Atlanta Braves. Remember game five and they went out there and what they put nine runs up in the first inning. And we're like, oh, man, this offense is red hot. This is the season. And then they go into the next game against the Nationals in the NLCS, and they're basically hitless against who was the guy? Animal Sanchez. He's really good, though. Yeah, okay. He was dealing, as he we was like to say. He was horrible the entire postseason except for when the Cardinals oh, th- faced That's him. what okay. this team feels <laughs> like, true. though. That's what this. That's what it feels like. You're going to get one game where you're like, there it is. Cardinals just flipped the switch. And it is very similar to the Blues, right? Three-game win streak. Flip the switch. Here we go, boys. Next game, two hits and 10 strikeouts. I, you brought up the point of, you know, how long can you continue to say this? Because yeah. at some point, it's going to run out of, well, we're just hitting the ball hard and we're just running into bad and luck. And at some point, they might not hit the ball this hard. Like, that's the thing that's really frustrating is right now, while they are up there with the elites of the elites, the offense isn't producing. And guys, let's be honest. I can look at the players that are in this lineup. I don't think they're going to finish top five in hard hit rate. What? I don't think that's sustainable for them. And so you wish that right now, while they are up there, there would be the results that are coming, and it's just not. I, I think that I think this is the last week that you can have with that excuse. I really do. I think by the end of this week, it can no longer be. Well, we're hitting the ball hard. Come yeah. on, we're, you're almost. You'd be 20 games into the season, 20, close to 25. About that 30 mark is when you really need to start looking at shuffling things up. In my opinion, I always like to look at it in 15 game increments. We've gone through 15. The rotation through 15, a problem. The offense. A problem, but there's some positive signs. The next five to 15 games, that's going to be what we can tell, whether or not you need to shuffle the lineup or not. I think you get out of April, and this is the same problem. I'm done with the, they're hitting the ball hard, and I don't know what's going on excuse. And I think once you get, I mean, we talked about it last week. Flag day is kind of that benchmark. If this continues to flag day, which, what, that's June 15th. Mm -hmm. That's not a good sign if you've gone basically three months of this. But if you hit that mark, and this is the same problem, then there has to be a shakeup. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 636. Guys, I think lineup construction does play a role here. It has me scratching my head every day that the lineup card comes out. I think that there is a worthwhile discussion to be had here. Yeah, but come on. The, the batting order in the lineup does not matter in a game like yesterday where you got two hits. 100%. There are definitely outliers. 
And as a whole, it is not the only option or the only issue for the Cardinals. This has to be an and conversation, not an or. It can't be the lineup or the team as a whole just doesn't have enough good good hitters, right? It's both. Both can be true at the same time. I think the lineup has been an issue. I think that it is really hard for me, even as a Matt Carpenter guy, to justify putting Matt Carpenter batting fifth regularly. That's tough for me. It's really hard for me at this point to justify Dylan Carlson batting behind Paul DeYoung consistently. I don't know how anybody can justify that one when Carlson has been the better hitter since the moment that he came up from the minors, even through his struggles. I'm having a really tough time with that one. Carlson needs to be moved up in the order. You got to move Carpenter and Carlson down at some point. Yeah, I'm Carpenter and DeYoung, excuse me. But again, doesn't matter. I mean, what? I mean, you can move Justin Williams up, and I'm fine with it. But you know, Justin Williams went 0 for three yesterday, and as great as he's been performing as of late, that doesn't make that much of a difference. I mean, you got to have somebody step up and, and take the role and run with it. And, and nobody has been able to do that right now. And, and you know, maybe it's one of the injured list guys. Maybe it's a guy in the minors that you can call up. But you need somebody to have a Brad Miller moment. You need somebody to kind of take the reins and say, okay, boys, I'm going to be the five-hole hitter here and kind of spark some momentum for these guys because right now it just seems like a group of four or five guys who are trying to do what the Cardinals need, but they're unable to do that, which is hurting everyone everyone else in the lineup. Tanner, do you have any theories here? On the lineup? Any terrible yeah. takes? Well, it might be terrible, but I, I right now I'm keeping Carlson in the seventh spot and just letting the lineup run out as it is. Why? It's all about those Please nerdy explain numbers. It to me. It's Please all about those nerdy it. numbers. Oh, I thought geez, we were doing are we, are this we a little back? bit later, but okay. Are we back to the nerdy numbers again? Yeah, nerd alert. Uh, so, nerd alert. Looking at it, Carl, I understand. Look, Carpenter's hitting it hard. I would bump him down. I would put DeYoung into the five spot. And honestly, I would be okay. Bump. You would move DeYoung up? I would move DeYoung up to the five. I would I would move DeYoung up to the five yeah, and then like Carlson at the six. You like strikeouts after Molina, don't you? Based on what, man? I... <laughs> I think DeYoung's kind of, he's looking better at the plate, in my opinion, just a little bit. He's striking out more than Tyler O'Neill. Well, hey, he was looking better yesterday. Two strikeouts. Yeah, see? He's striking out one out of every three times that he walks up to the plate. Now, he's walking a lot as well. Or two okay, or three. My yes, God, is he striking Let out? Let me rephrase this because Please. I, think, I texted you guys yesterday. I think I understand why they have Carlson hitting seventh right now. Again, not necessarily that I agree with it, but I... Looking at those advanced numbers, everybody that's hitting high and that we're criticizing, like it's Carpenter hitting fifth and DeYoung hitting sixth, they are crushing the ball. When you look at Carlson. Carpenter is? Oh, yeah, he is. When he, when what he was, makes contact, what was his, man. What was his hard hit when rate yesterday? Contact, zero. But okay. There's no hard hit rate whenever you don't make contact, oh. Alex. I don't know why you don't understand this. Oh, what was his expected hard hit rate? Zero. He didn't, make contact. he didn't make contact. I'm not oh, even sure okay. he touched the ball yesterday, to be quite honest with you. Oh, okay. But, well, he did when it whizzed by him. That's true. But when you look, when you look at it. Carlson's advanced metrics... He doesn't stick out like when you look at DeYoung. DeYoung's like top five, and I think it's I think it was hard hit percentage or something along those lines. Carpenter's like the top hard hit percentage guy right now. But you look at Carlson, and his numbers aren't there. The percent the percentiles, if you want to look at the percentiles, he's middle of the pack. And I understand BK's You're gonna say too much time he's with a BK. better. I know it's rubbing Here's off. Here's the thing: I actually disagree with everything he's saying. Yeah, and he says he's a gap to gap hitter, but there and is I agree no gap with that. to gap right now. No, Carlson. Carlson. We're talking about Carlson. Carlson's been good. Has he? 
Yeah. He's been okay. I don't think he's been good. He's I mean, been Carlson okay. has the second I'm, best OPS on the team right now. Say, Carlson's two, been good. And 255 batting average. I'm, I'm okay with that right now. He's getting on base 35% of the time. Carlson but, is the least of the again, Cardinals issues. I'm not... I, I would be okay hitting Carlson fifth, and honestly, I'd be okay with hitting him sixth. Sixth or fifth. That, to me, that's where Carlson belongs. But when you look at the numbers, that has to be the reason, right? No. It has to be. That's the percentiles. Once, once the offense, it's all about hitting the ball hard. Here's what I think they need to do, and they need to experiment with this because nothing else is working. Put somebody in the two-hole and move Goldschmidt and Arenado down. Yes. Put. So, I don't care who, but Carlson, DeYoung, Williams, Hell, put Yadier Molina in the two-hole. Somebody needs to hit there and move Goldschmidt and Arenado down into their comfort zones. Just get your best players more at-bats. Yes. That's what you got to do right now and get them more at-bats while they're they're crunched up with other guys. Carlson batting second is your best-case scenario right now. You go Edmund, Carlson, Goldie, um, Arenado, Arenado, and then Yadier. Yep. And then figure it out from there. And then I, you're putting DeYoung in the sixth spot. You can put whomever you'd like in the seven. Carlson, or I'm sorry, Carpenter, Williams, whoever. Probably not Carpenter, but Williams, somebody. You're moving everyone down to get more opportunities to put guys in front of your best hitters. Eventually, this team has to do that. And Tanner, to answer your question, why are they not? It's because of the veteran stuff. See, I don't necessarily buy that, though. Oh, I do. Eventually, you're going to have to, man. There's only one reason why those guys are batting in front of Dylan Carlson. It's because of the because they are veterans and they've done it before. Why does Matt Carpenter continue to get opportunities? Because he's, he's hitting the ball hard. No. No, he's striking out. Hard. Why did he get him last year? It wasn't because he was hitting the ball hard. It was because he's a veteran, and this manager really likes his veterans. Why did they have to trade a guy in the outfield to, uh, in um, Dexter Fowler? to the angels because they were going to continue to play him despite the fact that he wasn't hitting the ball hard. There were no advanced metrics to support the fact that Fowler should have been out there every day, but they knew he's going to play every day. So they traded him to be able to open up that spot for the young outfielders right or wrong. This is the way that Mike Schilt does things. And I think that there is some, some reason to believe that it is the right way. There was also some frustrations that come along with it. And there were a lot of criticisms that were flung at Mike Matheny for doing these exact same things. I think we're starting to hear some of those same concerns about Mike Schilt. We'll talk about this more throughout the day today with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up next, Alex Ferrario told me before the show today something that I legitimately cannot believe about the Blues. The second period in my mind has doomed the Blues playoff chances. Alex says it's not even their biggest issue right now. We'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. The ultimate optimist over here. I don't know if I'm going to feel pretty good about their opportunities. And even if it's a close game, I don't know if you're going to hear me come on the air Monday if they lose tooting the Blues horn. Coyotes in the slot, shoot and score. What do you do in the second period? Second period has been their worst period, and if you look at the games against Arizona, it's a period that's plagued them as well. Shoot, they score. Power play goal, top of the far circle. Keller was there, put it in, and the Coyotes have come from a 2-0 deficit to tie it 2-2. It seems like we we go out in second periods and we're we're not aggressive anymore. We sit back and let teams come at us and get on our heels, and, you know, next thing you know, it's they, they score right away and fragile. They shoot and score. Chikrin slapped it in, and the favorable matchup leads to the Coyotes' goal. It's 3-2 Arizona. And the Coyotes have jumped back over the Blues, who give up a game 
in Arizona tonight. The Blues are still technically ahead of Arizona by points percentage for fourth place in the West, but Arizona is now ahead by a point in terms of the overall points on the year. Blues lose on Saturday night by a final score of 3-2. to two. Once again, it was the second period that did them in. In their last 10 games, Alex, they have been outscored 16-5 to five in the second period. Three of those five goals came in their 9-1 to outburst against the Wild. So in the other games, they have been outscored by a combined score of 16-2 to in the second period. And with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kiley, I thought that was going to be the story coming out of that one. But then before the show, we were talking a little bit about the Blues, and you said, BK, the second period's an issue, but they've got something that's an even bigger issue than that. It's the other two periods. And, yeah, I, look, so I, I understand the second period has not been pretty for the Blues. I, I mean, it really hasn't. Overall this season, they're minus 12 in goal differentials in the second period, which is not great. But if you look at two other teams that I hone in on and I compare them to the Blues because I think they're very comparable, the Nashville Predators and the Minnesota Wild, both teams sitting in a playoff spot, Nashville sitting in fourth place, Minnesota sitting in third place, both have 57, 50 points right now. Nashville's minus 17 in the second period. Minnesota's minus 13 in the second period. But you know what the difference between those two teams and why they're playing the way they are and why they're better than the Blues record-wise? Because they're plus 12 in the third period. Minnesota's plus 9 in the third period. They're plus 19 in the first period. Which means they're scoring a lot more goals and they're getting better goaltending and defense in the first and third period. The Blues are plus 5 in the first period, which is pretty good. They're plus 1 in the third period. And we've talked a lot about how good they are in the third period coming back and things like that. But this is the part where I came to this conclusion, BK. Because I'm thinking, okay, well they're not scoring goals and they're allowing goals. What's going on here? They have outshot the opponent in 18 games, which is not a lot in the second period. 18 games all season? All season. They've yeah. outshot the opponent in the second so they've period. they outshot by their opponents in 25 games in the second Correct. period. Correct. But here's the problem. When they outshoot their opponent, they're 6-9-3 and three in the second period. So they're getting more shots on goal in those periods. They're producing more offense in the second period, but they're still losing. They're still below 500 in the second period. So as much as I look at the second period problems for the Blues and say, man, this is not good, the bigger problem is that the Blues don't finish off the opponent in the first period or they don't finish off the opponent in the third period. Go back and look through some of these games this season. They've gone into the third period, whether it's been even or down a goal differential in the second period, they're either tied or they're down by a goal to the opponent in the third. And then things get away from them. Then they allow three goals, four goals, five goals. The opponent runs away with it in the third period when the Blues are within grasp. For me, and especially after watching this game on Saturday against Arizona, I look at this team and I say the patented Doug Armstrong quote of jamming the knife into the eye and killing the opponent, they're not doing that. Because that first period against Arizona where they scored the first goal of the hockey game, they could have put the team away. And they didn't. They missed their opportunity. Second period comes along. Blues aren't out of the gate fast enough. Arizona has their matchup. They get the matchup and they score. And then they finish off the opponent, unlike the Blues are able to do. So in the first segment, I said this is not an it is not an or conversation. It's an and conversation. I think it also applies here, Alex. The Blues' second period problem is, in my opinion, the biggest issue that they have. They have a blow-up period right now. And especially in their last 10 games, that's been the case. The problem is that their best 
is also not as good as these other teams that you're talking about. The Predators, the other teams in their own division, when they dominate in any individual period, the domination results in like a two-to-one period. Meanwhile, with the Avalanche or the um, at times the Wild, the Golden Knights, the Predators, some of their best performances, if they're awesome in a period, it's like 3 nothing, 4 nothing, where they have, no pun intended, an avalanche of goals going up against their opponent. The Blues don't really do that very often other than that 9-1 to win that they had recently. And now, what are the results? Well, they've lost 14 of their last 19 games. And guys, I just... This is why I was hesitant to jump on board after that three-game winning streak because there was absolutely signs that things had clicked for them. But it was still just three games. And so now I'm looking at a 20-game sample size, basically, where I'm going back about six weeks. And the Blues for six weeks have been a below-average to bad hockey team. In terms of the results, just in terms of if I'm looking at the bottom line, wins, losses, they've lost 14 out of 19. And so I have a really hard time looking at this sample size of games where they've had for most of that time now, the vast majority of their roster. The team that I've watched in that span is not a playoff team. They are not even close to as good as the Golden Knights or the Avalanche. And we saw the proof on the ice on Saturday. I don't think they're as good right now as Arizona. I wish that they were. I want them to be talent wise. I think they should be. But for whatever reason, Alex, it just doesn't seem to be clicking for them. They're better than Arizona. They're just not better than them right now this season. Eventually, don't you become what your record is, though? No, uh, because, and again, people are going to hear this as an excuse, and I understand it, but you always go back to that injury situation where they have had guys out that are trying to get back acclimated to it. But But the record lately has been with their healthy guys. With their healthy guys, but how healthy are they? And how acclimated to the season are they? That's the question you have to ask. And again, I understand it. It's an, it's an excuse, but it, it is what it is because this season has happened that way. We talk a lot about Tarasenko and Schwartz. Look at how many games they've last few few seasons. You take that into consideration. But the biggest issue, and what I said is, you know, their players are better than Arizona on paper, not, just not the season. You know who led the team in shots on goal? On Saturday, Hoffman, I think, and Jake Wallman. Those two had a combined eight shots on goal. You know how many shots on goal combined you had from your top six? Eight. So Tarasenko, Schwartz, Shen, O'Reilly, Perron, Blay had eight shots on goal, while you had eight shots from your third pairing defenseman and Mike Hoffman, who's been a healthy scratch. That, in my opinion, is your problem. You're not getting the best results from your top players. The guys who scored goals against you are their best players. That's that's where this issue falls apart. Speaking of that, Schwarzenko line that you love sounded, so much. It sounded great. Uh, Shin is currently in the longest goal drought that he's had since uh, joining the Blues, 16 games. Schwartz has scored two goals in 14 games since his return. They both came in that wild 9-1 to win nice against pun. Minnesota. Nice pun. And Tarasenko has three goals in 19 games since his return. So those three have been together for 14 games now. Well, Craig Bruby doesn't like it because he broke them up today. And they should be broken up because that line right now, I love all of those players individually. They have all done incredible things here in St. Louis, and I'm going to love all of them forever. That line stinks right now, and it's not producing the level that it needs and to. And now you have the Schwarzacko line. Ooh, yeah, I'm not a fan of that. So who is on that line? Schwartz, Bozak, Tarasenko. 
Okay. The Schwarzak line. So uh, also, Vince going. Dunn is apparently day to day. He's got a injury as yeah. well. He took a block shot, and now he's day to day. So the guy that has been really good for the Blues lately yep. has been playing his best hockey in more than a calendar year. He is now day to day as well. Well, for right now, this I still believe they can make the playoffs, but. It is not going to be pretty if they get in or if they miss because right now they're just not getting the performance that they need from their top guys. Where are you at right now? Last thing on this, and we'll get to Mark Zuckerman, who is not the guy that invented Facebook. Facebook. He is a Nationals insider for Mass and Sports. Where are you at right now? If you had to guess today, do the Blues make the postseason? Yeah, they do. They they, they sneak in in those last uh, in the last spot by a couple of points. But yeah, I still think they get Tanner? in. No. I, I don't think they're a playoff team. They're I not agree. playing like a playoff team, and the schedule's going to be tougher. I think they missed by just a little bit. I, I do not think they get in this year. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Mark Zuckerman is a Nationals insider for MASN Sports up in D.C. He's going to join us next to talk about this series. And could the Cardinals get Max Scherzer this year? We'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. Very happy right now to go out to the Brownie and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Mark Zuckerman is a Nationals insider for MASN Sports up in D.C. You can follow him at his name, at Mark Zuckerman. Mark, thanks so much for the time today, my friend. How you doing? Hi, my pleasure. How are you guys doing today? Doing all right. So I just went over to uh, your latest piece up on MASNsports.com, and you wrote about the positives and the negatives about the Nationals after the first couple of weeks of the season. And, Mark, as I'm looking through these, it basically looks like the Nationals and the Cardinals have been walking the same path so far in the 2021 <laughs> season, where you've got a few <laughs> few guys that you feel really good about and a few guys that have severely underperformed early in the season. Yeah, I think it's a good way to, to describe it. Um, you know, when Steven Strasburg is on the injured list. You guys saw him pitch last week in St. Louis and how bad that looked. It turned out he was injured. Uh, Josh Bell, their big offseason acquisition, started the year on the COVID list and then um, has gotten off to a rough start. He's only hitting 100 here so far. Patrick Corbin hasn't looked right. So, I mean, those are some negative things. But by the same token, Juan Soto has been fantastic. He's been his usual self. Trey Turner's hit four homers already. Ryan Zimmerman has looked rejuvenated. Joe Roth, kind of out of nowhere, has been one of the best pitchers in the league. Uh, the bullpen's been good. So it's been a really wild roller coaster first two weeks of the season for them. And they're just trying now to get some of those negatives, sort of just bring them up. They don't even have to be positives, but if they can just kind of be middle of the pack, just be okay then maybe they can survive here for a while with that and then with the things that are going well. Uh, Mark, what do you think went wrong with the rotation? Because it seems like that is always the bright spot when it comes to the Nationals. When you talk about the top three of Scherzer, Strasburg, and Corbin, and I know Strasburg's on the injured list now, but where do you think uh, things went wrong this season for him? Was it the COVID or was it something else? I think they're all trying to figure that out, what really is the issue. And, and, and it should be pointed out that a year ago, when they thought they were going to start the season you know, originally in 2020, you know, there were concerns because all the innings those guys threw throughout October to get them to and ultimately win the World Series, and nobody was faulting them for their usage at the time. It helped them win a title. But there was a concern about the, the domino effect of that. Would there be, um, you know, would it be tough to come back the next year? And then you have to shut down for four months, and then you start the season up, and it was a quick ramp-up. Strasburg got hurt real quickly. He had uh, carpal tunnel syndrome, essentially, in his wrist. He only made two starts. 
Corbin really struggled last year. He had the highest whip in the league. So coming into this year, there was still a question mark there, especially with those two. And so far, it, it's been founded. Um, you know, Strasburg, again, is hurt with his shoulder. Corbin, they're saying that he feels fine physically, but he has been really off in both of his starts. And his start tomorrow night, I think, is going to be huge. It's going to be a huge indicator of, uh, you know, is he okay? Can they get him back on track? Or is there a more significant problem there? Mark, as I look at these two teams, there are, I mean, it's its kind of interesting to see how many similarities there are, especially in the middle of the lineup, because the Cardinals are hoping that Goldschmidt and Arenado can basically carry that lineup and they get a little, a little bit of depth from their other pieces. The Nationals, at least from the outside looking in, looks kind of similar in that you've got Soto, you've got Turner, those are your two big guys in the middle, and then it's a matter of can Josh Bell, can Kyle Schwarber kind of pick up as those extra pieces as somebody who was in Washington, do you see similarities between the ways that these two teams have kind of uh, developed and built their lineups? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Uh, obviously, both teams have a couple of really big-name stars that are, are anchoring their lineups, and then they're hoping to get more. Now, I mean, in the Nats' case, last year it was Turner and Soto, and they didn't get much else from anybody else. And so that was a real priority over the winter to try to bolster that and provide some protection for them. And you know, with Bell and Schwarber, they bought low on them. There's a, these are guys who had down 2020 years, but were really good in 2019. And the, they were banking on the fact that they were going to get back to their form. Now, it's a little early to evaluate them, again, because both of them were on the COVID IL to start the season. And Bell had a great spring training. Uh, Schwarber had a solid spring training. So they were encouraged until they had to then you know, ultimately miss the first week of the season. So it may take a little while for them to get their timing back, but they do ultimately believe that Turner, Soto, Bell, and Schwarber in particular is going to be a, a pretty fearsome foursome for them. And then you also have Ryan Zimmerman back after opting out last year, and he's gotten off to a very good start. So they believe that there it will be enough lineup depth. But as far as sure things, it's Turner and Soto, and then they're kind of hoping for the rest of it. Yeah. You know, Mark, if any see if if any season showed fans why there's supposed to be patience in the early portion of the year, it's 2019 for the Nationals because I mean they started off and by the beginning of June they were one of the bottom teams in their division, and then of course we all know how that story ended. So from your perspective, you know what's the what's the I guess uh, for lack of a better word leash that fans should have in terms of patience with the team when they come out of the gate struggling. Yeah, I, I think if you know that you have a team that is built to win and you can, you know the roster is legit and either you're just dealing with some injuries or uh, you know some guys that are just a little slow to get going, I think there's you know still reason to be optimistic. And that's why even as bad as things looked in 19 for the Nationals, at that point their lineup was decimated by injuries and they knew they were getting Turner and Rendon uh, and a few other guys back and that it would get better. They knew they had a great rotation. Now, they also knew they had a terrible bullpen at that point. And the feeling was, okay, just get to July, and then they're going to go make some trades. And they did, and they got Daniel Hudson, who was huge for them. Sean Doolittle came back from his injury, and they rode those guys all the way to the World Series. So if you can see the reasons that it should get better over the course of the, of the summer and into the fall, then I think it's fine to stay optimistic. The concern would be, if you don't really see the right pieces there or you don't have reason to believe that things are going to get better. And so right now we don't know when Strasburg's coming back or what he's going to look like then. We don't know if Corbin is going to figure it out around here. So, you know, that would be the concern that maybe this is a little different than the start of 19. Now, you know, well, it's only two weeks. They've only played 13 games. 
so I don't want to jump the gun too much. But I could say that there may be a few more reasons for concern here now than there were in 19, at least, at least at this point in the season. Mark Zuckerman is our guest here on 101 ESPN. He's a Nationals insider for MASN Sports. He's joining us on BK and Ferrario. Mark, I think in, Car- in Cardinals land out here in St. Louis, everybody is rooting for the Nationals to be terrible this year. <laughs> because if so, maybe Max Scherzer becomes available at the trade deadline, and it's possible that he could be available certainly uh, next year in free agency as well. What's your read on that situation with Scherzer? Do you get the sense that he could be made available at the deadline? Line and if not, what do you think his plans are in the off season? From what you've heard, <laughs> boy, we're going really doom and gloom here, huh? Hey, we, listen, Mark, we we're we're we project forward. <laughs> no, I get it, I, I, and you're not the first one to ask me this question, so it's okay. Um, you know, I, it's a fascinating topic if it comes to that. What I would say is, I think there's a few things here. Number one. I don't think the Nationals believe that that's going to happen, that they're going to be in that position where they are trying to sell off. Now, it doesn't mean that it can't happen. If it does, if they do get to that point, remember Scherzer uh, has the, would be a 10-5 and five guy, so he has no trade rights, so he can veto any trade uh, or would have to accept any trade. Now, to go to St. Louis, to go back home, would that be one he might veto it for? Yeah, I would think that would be maybe more likely than somewhere else. But this is a guy who I think still believes he can pitch for several more years. Uh, He has looked great so far. The first start opening day gave some homers early, but since then he's been lights out. And, um, you know, he he has not seemed ready to to call quits at all. And so, you know, I feel like the Nationals, even if they don't have a good season, I have a hard time seeing them doing a full-blown tear-it-all-down and rebuild start all over, at least yet. I think they still feel like because Strasburg's under contract for so long, Corbin is for so long, uh, they have you know Soto and Turner are young players. I think they feel like they're going to still be able to contend in the future. And they like Max Scherzer. He likes it in Washington. And I don't have a whole lot of reason to believe that either side of that equation is going to want to part ways. Again, it doesn't mean it can't happen. And, of course, there's always a possibility you trade a guy in July and then try to re-sign him in the winter. But... I think the Nats are still going to be trying to win in 2022, and I think they're going to believe that Scherzer can be part of it. Interesting. Well, I'd, I think Cardinals fans are rooting something for something different, but we'll certainly be paying attention <laughs> to all of that as uh, as we keep going. Hey, Mark, enjoy this series between the Cardinals and Nationals. I can't believe they're already going to be done after this one, and it's mid-April, but enjoy the series, and we'll talk with you again soon. Okay, thank you, guys. Absolutely. That's Mark Zuckerman joining us here on 101 ESPN. I found it really interesting. We've got somebody on the text line uh, from the 314 is basically telling me repeatedly that the Cardinals and Nationals do not have similarities. I don't think they're exactly the same. They have gone about things very differently, especially in the rotation. The Nationals are willing to throw money all around that rotation because they believe in having a big three at the front end. The lineup is somewhat similar, though, in the way that it is constructed with both teams having big time bats in the middle and a bunch of pieces, extraneous pieces surrounding them. One thing that may be happening here, Alex, is that the Cardinals are one year behind in their build process of their lineup compared to the Nationals and that the Nationals went out this offseason and they realized what their problem was a year ago. They didn't have enough pieces around those two big bats. The Cardinals might realize that this year and the next offseason is when they go find that five hole and six hole hitter that slots into their lineup that makes them feel much better about things. 
I wonder if they're one year behind where the Nationals are right now in terms of the lineup construction. Yeah, it makes sense. And if you look at how the Nationals got to this point, you know, when they got rid of some contracts that were on their books, like Bryce Harper was a free agent. That's where they were able to go out there and sign Patrick Corbin. And that's when they were able to go out there and, you know, bring in a couple of different pieces to kind of solidify that lineup. So, and yeah, Anthony Rendon too. and Anthony Rendon. So I can see kind of the similarities between these two teams. So I don't think they're that far off. And when you look at the rotation, yeah, the Cardinals don't have that big three, but what the Cardinals have that I don't think the nationals have is a better bullpen. So you can kind of offset each side of things um, very similar in each other. And yeah, I do see the Cardinals being one player away, but I found it really interesting when I asked him about, you know, having that patience with the team, it's more about knowing if you have the right guys. And that's what this season is. Yes. You have the right guys and Goldschmidt and Arenado and Tommy Edmond and Yadier Molina and Paul DeYoung. But then it's that outfield core that we're talking about that we went into the season saying, okay, they're gonna have to figure out who they are. That's why this season, I think you're still a year behind because you're saying, okay, are these the guys? Because if they're not, we got to go find the guys. And I've got a name to pay attention to. We'll get into that coming up here in about 15 minutes. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Questions and answers coming up next. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service tax line for questions and answers uh, from the three one four guys. Let's talk about the bullpen and why the manager is using six pitchers with a six to one lead in the third. That bullpen that you rave about is not going to be a factor in June at this rate. Are you guys concerned at the usage the Cardinals are having right now with their bullpen? Heck yeah, I'm concerned. Two guys' arms might fall off before we get to May. Tyler Webb, man. Ty- Mike Schilt must be Spider-Man because he uses that guy more than Spider-Man uses webs. Wow, that was a that was a solid dad joke. I'll give you credit on that one. <laughs> Thanks. Bet. I've been stewing over that since Saturday. <laughs> I gotta say, that one was pretty good. That was well done. But like, you're you're in my opinion, your best lefty reliever is gonna be broke by the time you get to flag day. And that arm's made of And Ryan Helsley, Ryan Helsley, the swing man, his arm might be a windmill after this because this dude's like, it's going to fall off. He might be throwing off of ligaments by the end of this season. I feel like it is kind of an off day for the Cardinals when Webb or Helsley doesn't enter the game. Like, did the Cardinals really play if Webb or Helsley didn't or, enter the game? Or they were winning. Or they were winning. Well, even when they're winning, they're still pitching. Well, They've if, appeared in nine games so far this year. That tells you the, wow. the that tells you the <laughs> confidence that Mike Schilt has in the bullpen because he won't use guys like Andrew Miller or any of the other pitchers unless it's like a 13-run lead. Then it's like okay we're good but a blowout where they're getting dominated or a close game you're going to be just destroying Webb and um uh, uh Helsley. thank you i was thinking gallegos to be fair i understand not using miller just so we're clear <laughs> um, me too by the way remember early in the season when schiltz told us not to read into the fact that uh miller had been used in a nine to six loss and then a 12 to one loss i'm reading into it he has since been used in a three to one win okay leverage cool awesome a nine to five loss a five to two loss nine to two loss two to nothing loss i think we can go ahead and read into the fact that andrew miller is now no longer a high leverage usage just you reliever had, for the Cardinals. you had anymore. to hit that innings plateau last season didn't you uh six five seven eight oh is the air comfort service text line for questions and answers from the three one four guys how long do you think it will take before cardinals fans start putting legitimate pressure on john mosaylock been groundhog day around st louis for three years but we all act like this team is going to turn it around isn't this on john mosaic 
start putting pressure on John Mosellock. I think they've been putting pressure on John Mosellock. It's funny how it goes, though, because the Arenado trade happened and things started to cool a little bit. Like, okay, they they finally got their guy. Way to go, Mo. And then that first uh, that first loss to Cincinnati was, damn it, we need an outfielder. That's actually pretty well said. <laughs> Let's not forget, Mo was even little. What was it, little Mo? We're happy yeah. with tiny Mo or little Mo? I think people oh. are happier with little Mo right now. Yeah. Who's little Mo? John Mo. I think he's alter ego. It's kind of so weird. So who's big Mo then? I'm just telling you what aren't you, you suppo- aren't, you, aren't you supposed to know this? I apparently Cardinals <laughs> I thought inside you were the BK. Cardinals guy. <laughs> yeah, should have known. You're the ultimate optimist. Things will be okay because Matt Carpenter's hitting the ball hard. In all seriousness, I'm really not that worried about this Cardinals team yet. What? Like, will Cardinals fans put pressure on Mo? Of course, because that's what Cardinals fans do. Because they're a great, passionate fan base that consistently stays up with this team. I don't think now is the time to panic about this team, though. The rotation's been awful. The Correct. lineup has not shown very many signs of life outside of the one through four spots in the lineup Are so you far. you getting to a positive? And yet they're seven and eight on the year. If you told me before the season that the lineup five through nine would stink, the rotation would be awful and would have one uh, quality start through the first 15 games of the year, and that we'd be talking about Andrew Miller like he had turned into a pumpkin... Yeah, I'd say that the first 15 games of the season went horribly, horribly wrong, and they were like 4-11. and 11. But PK, you're 7-8 and eight because you swept a series against Miami, who's not good. Yeah, you're buying yourself time. But you and the lost- rest of the division isn't great either. But you've lost every series you've played in. Absolutely. And yet, despite all of these things that we have just said... You're like a game and a half back of the Reds for first place in the division. But weren't we criticizing the Blues when they would win a game and lose a game playing 500 hockey? You can't play 500 baseball and expect to be good. And if this is the team in July, if this is the same thing, if the product that we're seeing now is the product that we're seeing in mid-July, mid-June, I will absolutely be leading the panic bus and I will be on the same path that I was with the Blues. But early on in the Blues seasons, I said, hey, there are a lot of explanations as to why we're here. Let's give it time. Let's see what this team looks like. Not healthy. They still stunk. And so I, I reversed course on that. If this is the case in June, I will reverse my statement on the Cardinals. But for the here and now, are you guys panicking? Because I'm not panicking yet. I'm not panicked, but I am worried. Because I think we talked a lot last week about, you know, when when is, when is it time to panic? And you said, well, no, you can't read into much in the first couple of weeks, but you can start to see trends. I look at the starting pitching and I see a trend that I don't think is fixable. I don't think Michaelis is the savior. We'll see if KK is. I, KK was okay in his first start. Wish he would have gone longer, but I don't think that was necessarily on him. And then the outfield, which is something that we've been concerned about for the last three years, is trending in the wrong direction, too, I would have to say. I don't know if you can convince me that it's not i don't think bader's your savior i don't think o'neill's gonna come back and be hitting the ball like he was in spring and to me what that shows and then the bullpen's fine but what happens if it continues to be worked like this then we don't know that's a big that's a big if question mark my concern is if you come july and this is what the team is doing where the rotation is struggling the bullpen i think would fall off at that point and the outfield's not hitting there's a lot that you'd have to add in July that you can't, in my opinion. I just want to see this team with its best defensive construction. I want to see Tommy Edmond at second. I want to see Dylan Carlson in right. I want to see Harrison Bader in center. I want to see them because 
one of the things that I was really excited about for the 2021 Cardinals, it's not an exciting thing, I guess, but one of the things that gave me confidence about this team was that they could legitimately be the best defense in baseball. And I still think that they have that potential, but early on this year, one of the biggest issues for them that I wasn't expecting is that their defense hasn't been as sound as expected. Second base has been up and down with Carpenter. Tommy Edmonds been fine and right, but he's not a great right fielder. He's solid, but you expect more from Dylan Carlson out there. Center, you expect Bader to be really, really good. And Tyler O'Neill, when he comes back. Gold glove. He's got issues at the plate, certainly, but he's got the potential in left as well. So I want to see them at full strength defensively. And I think that's going to help their starting pitching as well. So once that comes back, if they stink, then we can talk. But for the here and now, I'm still over here smoking my cigar, drinking my dirty in, martini. In the building. I'll be all right. Ferrario, in the building again. He keeps detaching the smoke detector, which is illegal. If I'm my, <laughs> With my Alex opinion. Ferrario, Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up next, guys, a name has emerged that I think would be a potential solution for the Cardinals outfield woes. And where is Tommy Edmonds' future for this Cardinals team? We'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Goals in 2019, and he launches one into deep right, and it's caught. Tommy Edmond up against the screen with the catch. Lined into right field, backing up Tommy Edmond and crashing up against the wall to make the catch. Is there anything that this kid cannot do? I think the answer is no. That was Jim Edmonds and Danny Mack on Bally Sports Midwest over the weekend. Tommy Edmond with multiple big time plays, plays you would expect to see, frankly, from Dylan Carlson in right field. And guys, I think it is officially time to ask the question of where does Tommy Edmond fit into the Cardinals future plans? Because he's definitely a part of those plans. He's a big part of it. He's your leadoff hitter and he can play all over the diamond and he's a pretty darn good defender wherever you put him with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. Guys, is his future more at right field? Moving forward, is it at second base? Is it a combination of a little bit of everything? Where does Tommy Edmond fit into this team's plans? For me, I think it comes down to where Nolan Gorman fits. If Nolan Gorman's going to be a better second baseman for you than an outfielder, then I think Tommy Edmonds going to be an everyday outfielder because I just don't see them being able to upgrade multiple positions in the offseason because if guys don't pan out, you might be looking at two positions that you need corner outfielders with or a center fielder and an outfielder uh, to go out there with Dylan Carlson. So Nolan Gorman, I would say, profiles better as a second baseman than an outfielder. Um so, yeah, I think Tommy Edmonds going to be a corner outfielder for this team. But the problem is, is Harrison Bader going to be your everyday center fielder or does Dylan Carlson become your everyday center fielder? And then does Tommy Edmonds get one of those corner outfield spots? Because if Harrison Bader remains to be an everyday player for the Cardinals, in their opinion, then you're going to have one corner outfielder spot that you're going to have to upgrade when Nolan Gorman's ready. I'm with you. It depends on Gorman, but also I think it's important to, if Bader can be the center fielder that you want, and maybe he improves offensively, maybe he doesn't, then I think Tommy Edmond projects to be a left fielder going forward because Gorman's going to be a second baseman. Carlson's better position is right field based on what the Cardinals have said and kind of like reading the tea leaves into that. But if Bader struggles offensively and you want to maybe, I don't know, move on from him or make him kind of a fourth defensive outfielder, then Edmond's a right fielder to me because Carlson slides over to center. And the way he played this weekend, look, I agree, I agree. To me, he's really good at second base, and it's going to be tough to pull him from that position. 
But this weekend, he looked really good in right field at a ballpark that he hasn't played in in two years. That's impressive. So I think Tommy Edmond, it really made me start to question, he might actually be a outfielder going forward in the Cardinals' future plans. So it's interesting. If you expect Gorman to be your second baseman of the future, if we think that's where he's probably going to fit in, and I think that's fair and reasonable to expect. If you expect Carlson to kind of fit in there as your right fielder and Bader to be center, I think you've got a kind of natural platoon situation that could be on your hands. Um, If you put Tommy Edmond in right field specifically, against left-handed pitching, um, you could move Dylan Carlson over to left, or excuse me, against uh, right-handed pitching. You could move Dylan Carlson to center, so you give Harrison Bader the days off against righties, so you've got kind of a matchup situation there. And you put Gorman in the lineup in those situations against right-handed pitching at second base. So I think what you'll see is Tommy Edmond sliding from second base to right field. I think what you're seeing this year is kind of what I would expect moving forward. And instead of it being Matt Carpenter, the name that you'll have there is Nolan Gorman. But I think it's basically the same plan, the same plan that you're utilizing right now. You just play the matchups, as Mike Schultz would like to say, with uh, Edmund sliding from right field to second base, right field to second base, depending on if it's a righty or a lefty on the mound. I think it works out really well for him. And this is something that the Dodgers do all the time to their advantage. They use the matchups to decide, okay, who do we want out there on any given day? You're not going to see the same guys in their lineup every day, but they make sure that their best guys are out there for that particular matchup. I think Edmund helps you with that. Then the problem becomes, though, Who's, you don't have anybody coming up in the minors that's an outfielder for you, an everyday outfielder. I mean, this is it right now. doesn't seem like anybody's going to be coming anytime soon. So if Tommy Edmond becomes the platoon player, then I still think you have to go out there and find multiple. You're missing one more. I think you might be missing two more because you're going to have a bunch of guys who are platoon players. You need to get guys who can be everyday players. I th- well, you would have Dylan Carlson playing every day. He would right. just be playing in right field on, on one day, and then he'd center be playing field. in center field against... But then you got two other outfielders who are platoon players. Yeah, so you've got... Basically, what you're doing here is right field is going to be manned by Carlson slash Edmund, and center field in this situation would be manned um, by Bader slash Carlson. So you've got two spots filled with those three players, basically right depending on the day and now you've got left field that you have open I just don't think that's that's recipe for success I think the successful teams have guys who are constant and maybe the Dodgers do yeah but the Dodgers have Mookie Betts who's an everyday player in right Cody Bellinger an everyday player in center and then you platoon guys in left that's two everyday players you also have guys that are like second base center field slash left field that they move all over the place depending on the day But that's one spot though I mean you got two positions that are everyday players that are mainstays for you yeah, but like Cody Bellinger will, will slide over on certain days. Chris Taylor plays all over there. Uh, Max Muncie, they'll take in and out of the lineup. I mean, they, they do play the matchups a lot. In fact, probably more than any other team in baseball, the Dodgers do. I don't think it's an issue for the Cardinals to go this route. In fact, the successful teams do this a lot. I mean, one of the reasons why the Padres went out this offseason and decided to bring back Profar and they got brought in uh, Ha Sung Kim. Is that his name? The guy that they brought in from overseas this year. They wanted to be able to be versatile, similar to what the Dodgers do with a lot of these platoon situations. I think it's okay to not have a set position uh, or a set player at a position every single day, as long as you eventually, by combining two players, have one really, really good guy. It's cheaper, it's cost effective, but you're still, as you said, Alex, you're missing one guy in the outfield. I think I've got a name for you guys. Would you like to hear it? Not if it's J.D. Martinez. 
It's not. He would be your uh, DH option. Oh, no, I really don't want to hear that. Yeah. I, don't, uh, I don't need Grandpa Martinez DH. out there. He's great. What are you guys talking about? Oh, let the pitcher JD hit. Martinez is awesome. Uh, Mitch Hanniger is a guy that I would be really interested in the Cardinals potentially acquiring. And I was reading over on The Athletic over the weekend. Jim Bowden of The Athletic wrote that he thinks that the Cardinals would be one of two teams that make a lot of sense for Hanniger. Now, he is a 30-year-old outfielder. He plays for the Mariners. He has one year left on his deal. It's an arbitration year next season. And he's a pretty good hitter when he's healthy. He hasn't always been healthy. Oh, good. So we're going to get a guy who can't stay healthy. Yeah, it's kind of the issue with him. But when he's healthy over the last four seasons, he's been 30% above league average. The guy can really hit. And he's a 275 hitter that gets on base at a really good clip. He's probably best in right field. So maybe instead of playing Edmund uh, in right, you would play him in left. But you could move him to left, I would think, if necessary. How does Mitch Hanniger sound to you guys as a potential option for the Cardinals in the outfield? What are you shaking your head no for? What's wrong with Mitch Hanniger? I, I like he's the an average player. He's he's. I just told you thirty percent above league average as a hitter, though. Oh, okay. I I would take Mitch Hanniger. I I would take Mitch Hanniger in a heartbeat, actually. Compared to what you have in the outfield right now, Mitch Hanniger is the guy. I just don't think he's the dude that you need right now. Who who do you want? Oh, then? I have no idea. I'm just saying he just doesn't scream. Oh, this is guy. He's going to fix the offense. He finished a. Is it 11th? Yeah, 11th in MVP voting in 2017, I believe Oh, it was. 2017. 2018, sorry. Andy was an all-star. I, I think Mitch Hanniger is a perfect fit. As, as BK said, he's 30% above league average. You put him in right field move, Edmund to left field. Or actually, hopefully one of those left fielders actually can take a spot. Yeah, but whatever. you can figure it out. You get a guy like him. Him hitting cleanup or fifth in your lineup, whether Yachty's still hot or not, whatever, or Carlson's hot hitting cleanup, he makes your lineup a lot deeper. You now have five, five or six guys that are, you're five or six guys deep in your lineup, and right now you're five, I think, arguably. So you add him to this lineup, you become a better team, in my opinion. Earlier today, we were talking about how the Nationals and the Cardinals lineups compare. This would be your move, kind of similar to the Nationals bringing in Kyle Schwarber. Like you're basically bringing him in. I actually think he's been more productive in his career than Schwarber has, but you would be bringing him in to be like your sixth best hitter on a really good team or a fifth best hitter on a really good team. You're hoping he can replicate some of the production this year that you're getting from Yadier Molina, frankly, like that, that would be the type of player that he is. And then you go into your lineup and maybe next year it's Tommy Edmond leading off. You got Dylan Carlson, two, Nolan Arenado slash Paul Goldschmidt, three, four. And then you go Mitch Hanniger, five. You've got um, DeYoung, six. And now everything kind of fits a lot better. I think you're missing that one guy. We were hoping Tyler O'Neill could maybe fit into that spot. I think Hanniger or somebody like him is he's just a placeholder here. But I think he's realistic because the Mariners love trading guys on the last year of their deals. I think he would be somebody that fits this, and that's the kind of guy that the Cardinals are missing right now offensively. Now, I say I would take him, but I don't think he would be my plan A for right now just because of the health concerns. Sure. You're basically getting a player that is better than Tyler O'Neill. I think the Schwarber comparison is a really good one, actually, and he's better than Schwarber production-wise, but a guy that can't stay healthy. Basically like a Tyler O'Neill can't stay healthy, but he produces better than Kyle Schwarber. He's fragile Eddie Rosario. That That's what I'm I'm. Like that's giving to a, you guys. He perfect. he is Eddie Rosario who doesn't stay healthy as often as Eddie Rosario does. So is he a superstar? Absolutely not. 
but I'm not looking for a superstar for this lineup right now. If they could get one, great. I don't think that's realistic. I think they have their stars, and now it's about supplementing that with guys around them that can be quality players inside of the lineup. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up next, Alden Gonzalez is an ESPN Major League Baseball analyst. He was out in L.A. slash San Diego for that big series this weekend, and he wrote recently about what the difference is for fans in the stands. He's going to tell us about it next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. It is BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Very happy right now to go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. Alden Gonzalez is a baseball analyst for ESPN and ESPN.com. Joining us now on BK and Ferrario. Alden, we appreciate the time, man. How'd you enjoy that big series out on the West Coast this weekend? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm still sort of coming off that. It was uh, It was so much fun. It's so... It's so rare that um, a baseball series in April delivers that sort of palpable intensity that Padres Dodgers seem to give us. And I think the funny thing coming into it was the Dodgers who just won the world series, who have won eight consecutive division titles, did their best to downplay it coming in and even throughout. But you could tell just watching those games, the intensity that the Padres brought to them, the Dodgers had no choice but to match that, and it really did. It felt like a playoff game. Friday's game lasted five hours, but it didn't drag. It was fun from beginning to end. Uh, Darvish Kershaw the following day was the pitcher's duel that we anticipated, and Sunday that game wasn't decided until the eighth inning. So it's so much fun. Um, living out here, I knew that, Dodgers Padres is going to be appointment television for me. And I was going to have to be locked in on that game on those games all the time. And this weekend only further emphasize that. And it's just, I mean, we get four more of them this week. <laughs> it's going to be Dodgers Padres at Dodger stadium beginning on Thursday. So I think this series is going to deliver all year. It's going to be a blast. I agree. Alden. after watching it this weekend, I'm sitting here thinking this is the new rivalry in baseball. Like this is the go-to matchup for anybody. Is that your opinion? Uh, correct. The new rivalry between these two. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any doubt. I don't. And you know, I'm not going to even come close to putting it on the same scale as Red Sox Yankees, because that's um, there's some, you know, real history, you know, it's not Cardinals Cubs, but um, for what it is right now, I don't think there's a more interesting rivalry in the sport in 2021 and moving forward. And I mean, just think about like all the little subplots, right, that are contained within this series. I mean, Trevor, Trevor Bauer and Manny Machado, like Trevor has talked openly all the time about like how he can't get him out and he still couldn't get him out um, <laughs> yesterday. Um, Kershaw and Darvish, they have a friendship um, they were throwing partners, and Darvish talked about how when he got traded to San Diego, Clayton Kershaw stopped calling him because of the rivalry. Um, the, look, look at the postseason from last year, the way that like Cody Bellinger robbing Fernando Tatis, the way Machado was drawing at um, Bruce Dark Gratterall. Earlier in the season, the way Trent Grisham pipped that home run uh, off Clayton Kershaw. It's still obviously like the embryonic stages of this, and the Padres still have a lot to prove, obviously. But 
even in getting swept by the Dodgers in the NLDS last year, like those were really riveting games. I think those were, those were three of the best playoff games from last October. And uh, I think that even, even if the Dodgers don't want to truly acknowledge it, which is their right because, I mean, they've owned that division for, for almost a decade. The Padres were right there, and they could play with them. And they lost two of three, but they could have won Friday's game. They could have won Saturday's game. And their pitching lines up with the Dodgers. And if Eric Hosmer's hitting the way he's still hitting, if Will Myers gives him another good year, their offense can come close to that of the Dodgers. I'm not saying it's at the same level, but I think I, I would go so far as to say that the two best teams in baseball are in the National League West right now. And the fact that we are at a traditional playoff system for 2021 makes it even more fascinating because – the difference between winning a division and not, obviously, is if you don't win a division, all you're guaranteed is really one extra game at most. And that's why the Padres seem to really place so much importance um, in those games over the weekend. Alden Gonzalez is joining us here on 101 ESPN. And the other thing that stands out to me about this, Alden, is just like, I feel like the Padres are the perfect foil to the Dodgers as well, because stylistically the way that they play with so much joy and so much passion and the way that a lot of people prefer not to see the game play, like it's almost perfect to be able to bring the Dodgers into that series to get the best out of them, because it would be easy for the Dodgers to get through this season and just kind of mosey their way through because they are better than basically everybody else in the sport. But when they go up, and I think we saw this, as you said, over the weekend against a team like the Padres, they almost have a way of getting under the skin of the Dodgers that brings out the best in both teams. Did you sense that as well? Look, anytime you get Clayton Kershaw to curse on camera, (laughs) I think you're doing your job and rallying up your opponent. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, Look at the way that uh, Trevor Bauer celebrated um, striking out Fernando Tatis to end that sixth inning. The way he beat his chest and yelled right before walking into the dugout. He was so subdued afterwards when talking to the media and didn't even want to acknowledge the fact that there was extra adrenaline in this game. But he doesn't need to say anything. Like, we watched it. You know, it's, it's obvious. Um, just, I think you're absolutely right. The Dodgers have a tendency to feel... I guess very corporate in the way that they go about it. It's sort of like a very business-like approach, which is why they're so good. But the Padres became such a fun team last year because they admit this sort of real genuine joy in the way they play. I think it starts, I think it starts with Fernando Tatis Jr. and it funnels on down. And one, and to be honest, like one of the dampers of this series was that watching Tatis, he didn't really seem right. Like it didn't seem like Fernando Tatis. And I hope, that he can manage that shoulder injury throughout the summer and that we get the Fernando Tetsius Jr. that we know because that's going to add a whole other layer to it. He's not there yet, but absolutely. I think, I think you're seeing the, the Padres just sort of bring that out of the Dodgers. And, I mean, look at Mookie Betts, the way he celebrated um, making that catch on Saturday. Um, like, these are... These are real tight games that that mean a lot. Like you don't get that stuff in April. And and again, like what, one thing that we know that both teams do really well is they have really good starting pitching. And when you have really good starting pitching, that means you're going to get a lot of close games. I think I'm not going to say that every game is going to be close. There's going to be some duds along the way when you're playing 19 games against one another. But the vast majority of them should because the starting pitching is good. 
You know, Alden, I'm watching these games over the weekend, and, you know, I think the talk for a lot of baseball fans is, you know, how to improve the game, how to create more entertainment for the younger audience. And, I mean, looking at that game on paper, you're saying a 2-0 victory for the Dodgers, a 5-2 victory for the Padres. There's nothing interesting about that. And I'm trying to pinpoint what it is that baseball can look at, though, because what they did on the field and what we just talked about, like how does baseball take from the Dodgers and Padres and improve the other teams in the league? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know that um, I don't know that you could take anything from that. I think Padres Dodgers is a special case where it was just kind of like this perfect storm that had been building toward this year, especially when you look at what the Padres did over the off season and the fact that they seem so determined to just sort of dethrone the Dodgers in that division. I think the um, the the entertainment value of that series comes from just how intense it is. But I think when you're looking at the bigger macro issue of baseball and trying to just sort of um, increase the entertainment value of its product, I think, I mean, it, it completely comes down to balls and play. Like, that's all this is about. Um, the amount of dead time between pitches has never been greater than now. It continues to increase. And there's just too much dead time between games. And I, I'm not really sure if that was especially the case um, this weekend with Dodgers-Padres, but... I don't know that there's anything you could take from that. I think baseball has a real problem right now, and it's the it, it's the biggest focus of Major League Baseball right now is how can you create more action, and how can you, in an era when hitting has never been more difficult than it is right now because you're seeing everybody who gets out on that mound throwing 98-mile-per-hour cutters, um, how do you create more action, and how, you, how do you incentivize teams to play a different style of play from what the metrics um, are telling you to do. And that's why you're seeing baseball experiment with all these rule changes, because that's, it seems that's the only way that you can create more action is that you got to sort of tweak with the rules, whether it's something as simple as making bases a little bit bigger so that you incentivize more stolen bases or um, um, disincentivizing pitchers from stepping off the rubber or maybe something as drastic as moving the mound back like they're doing in the Atlantic League. Um, I think there are bigger, more substantial changes that need to be made um, if baseball wants to put um, a more entertaining product out there, um, in my opinion. And that's why they've been so hyper-focused on it. Last question that I've got for Alden Gonzalez of ESPN.com. Alden, last week you wrote about how much uh, fans in the stands have made a difference for the game so far this season. I feel like you could feel the fans in that series over the weekend. I'm not sure that it would have felt quite the same in terms of the intensity levels without them. What did you think about that aspect of things as well? Finally getting the fans back in the stands for a big time series like Dodgers versus Padres. Well, you talk to the players and that's one uh, constant theme with both teams is that the fans being in the stands made a difference in terms of the intensity level. I, for as much, for as many subplots as there are between these two teams, I'm not sure that we would have gotten this brand of baseball if it would have been uh, under last year's circumstances with piped in noise, no fans in the stands. I don't know that it would have been the same. And it was interesting, like just sort of gleaning from that, the fact that you had all these beat LA chants that circled through Petco Park throughout Friday. And then as the Dodgers won that game, as they came back and won on Saturday, you saw Dodger fans start to almost start to almost take over Petco Park again on Sunday. And it was almost like a 50-50 split between both fans. And you sort of 
you got a chance to really feel that rivalry and the fact that these teams are separated by 120 miles. Like, that's just, it's an added element that we have this year that I don't think that we realize how much we missed in 2020. And the, the thing that I'm excited about and the thing that gives me hope is as vaccinations increase, as cases drop um, throughout the country, as we get into July, August, September, these games now hopefully will come in full stadiums. And, I mean, think about the intensity of these games but with the backdrop of sold-out stadiums. Um, it's going to add another layer of excitement. And if you talk to, like, specifically Padres players and where they're at in, in their trajectory, they're dying for fans to fill up Petco Park again in San Diego because they feel like that community is really going to rally around that team, and hopefully we get to see that uh, very soon. It's going to be a special season. It was a special series over the weekend. Can't wait for another one. Alden will be following your work over on ESPN.com. People can follow you on Twitter as well at your name, Alden underscore Gonzalez. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. We appreciate it. Enjoy the series once again later this week, man. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Absolutely. That's Alden Gonzalez joining us here on 101 ESPN. Alex, as he was talking about it, and you mentioned this, you're absolutely right. That is the best rivalry right now in baseball. And there's, I've always said there's two different kinds of rivalries. There's the traditional ones like Mizzou versus Illinois in college or Cubs versus Cardinals in baseball. And certainly Red Sox, Yankees fits into that. And then there's also competitive rivalries. And the one that I always come back to that I think compares best for Dodgers Padres is in the NFL. And it's that Seahawks versus 49ers rivalry that we had with Pete Carroll and Jim Harbaugh. That had no history between those two teams. There was no reason why they should be rivals, but they're in the same division. They were both really good competing for Super Bowls at the same time. And it became the most entertaining series that you would see every year, twice a year and potentially three times. I feel like that is what Padres versus Dodgers has become for me. I have to watch it. It's must-watch television for me. I think it is, in terms of baseball right now, the one series that I feel like I cannot miss as a neutral observer of the sport. Yeah, it makes me feel like what it used to be Cardinals and Cubs and what it used to be with Yankees-Red Sox. And again, there's no comparing those two because there was pure like hatred between those two teams. But the reason I asked him of what baseball can take away from these, because I'm watching these and I'm like, man, you need more guys that are going to milk their plays, like taunt a little bit. And I know people get so down on it in baseball saying, oh, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's insulting to the game and there's rules that go with it. But like Mookie Betts cheering for a diving play in right field, like I'm all about that. I really, you know, John Tortorella said this a few years ago in hockey, and I think it's true. You need a little bit more hatred between teams, and I think For that's sure. what you have. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, um, bullpen brawls and guys coming off the benches. Sports hate. It's different. Yeah, you need guys, like, disliking each other. I mean, look, it's it's appointment television right now between the Cardinals and Reds the next time that they go head-to-head because of what took place. You need a little hatred towards each other, and I think that's what, at least if I'm running Major League Baseball, I'm looking at that series, and I'm saying we need to find a way to get this for the other 28 teams in the league. Tough part is it's so hard to manufacture, especially in baseball. It has to be organic. It has to be something that, and he's Alden was right. This is something that has been building, right? You've had the Padres that over like three to five years now have been building towards this specific point. And the Dodgers for a decade have been building towards this point in their franchise where now they're coming off of a World Series, right? They're the hunted, not the hunters. They're not the team that has blown it in the postseason again. Now they finally achieved it. They got to the mountaintop and they're trying to do it again. And now they're trying to become an all-time great team in terms of multi-year success. 
And that's on the table for them if they're able to sustain this. But the Padres are the one foil. They're the one team to me that can come in here and they can upset the apple cart by dethroning the Dodgers this year. And they know it. And that's what I think makes this so special. And what makes it also cool is the Padres have tried it in the past, too. Let's not forget, yeah. they went out and spent big. Remember, they signed they're the acquired Mad Kemp. They got Justin Upton. Adrian Gonzalez. They had him, too. I mean, they spent money in the past, and it failed. And they had to retool and then build this thing back up, like you mentioned, BK. So they've tried it in the past. It failed miserably. It blew up in their face. And now they're at this point you again. you teams that are more willing to take those risks. I Absolutely. mean, just look around the, the the other leagues. Like, you know, people, it was appointment television when the Boston Celtics put that super team together. And the same with the Golden State Warriors. And in hockey, right now, it's Vegas and Colorado and Tampa. I think you just need more teams that are willing to take chances like that rather than the patience mindset that goes into it. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. Speaking of teams that you can believe in, do you guys believe in the New England Patriots to win double-digit games next year? Vegas seems to. We'll give you some of our best bets for the NFL next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. And Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 10 minutes, we'll dive into the junk drawer for you guys. But over the weekend, the NFL win totals, the updated win totals from around the league, were released. Ram Super Bowl bound. And we will get into some of these. I picked out a few that I think are really interesting heading into this year's NFL draft. I wanted to see where you guys are at on some of these teams um, going into the season. Let's start out with the Browns. The Cleveland Browns are everybody's darling. They signed Jadeveon Clowney. Hopefully that improves their pass rush going into next season. They were really good last year and had a real shot at beating the Chiefs when Patrick Mahomes went down. Couldn't quite get the job done. They're over under a set at 10, 10 wins for the 2021 NFL season. They ended up 11 and five last year. You guys taking the over under at 10, 10 wins for the Cleveland Browns. Are we under the assumption that health isn't a concern with all of these? Yeah, Let's just I mean, do that hypothetically. No, I'd say there's over. no way for us to know otherwise. Yeah, I, I'd say over. I, I mean, that front line now and look again, health with Clowney, but Clowney and Garrett coming at quarterbacks like. It's going to be really difficult to stop that. And then on top of it, I mean, you saw the receiving core and what they did last year. And then the one-two punch of Kareem Hunt with Nick Chubb, it really comes down to Baker Mayfield. And I feel like last season was a learning thing for him. So I would take the over on this because they look like a team that could win 11 or 12 games this year. Yeah, I'm with you. I think the over 11-12 seems like the perfect number. You've got that elite pass rushing Clowney and uh, Garrett if it stays healthy, of course. I think Mayfield takes another step this season. So, yeah, I'll take the over. This seems low to me. I feel like I'm missing something because this seems really low to me with the Steelers. I think are going to take a little bit of a step back this year. Uh, their, their offensive line has been decimated by guys retiring, leaving there. I think the Ravens are fine, but they haven't really done anything to take a step forward. I think the Browns are going to win 11 or 12 games. I would probably install them as the favorite for the AFC North going into the season. So I'm definitely taking the over on this one. I think the Browns destroy the Ravens with that defense. if They can stay healthy. They should. They've definitely got the better pass rush of the two. I know the, the Ravens probably have a better secondary, but the Browns have a better pass rush. Let's go to the next one that I'm also very high on coming into the season. The Dallas Cowboys. They won six games last year. Dak Prescott got hurt. The offense crumbled as a result. Their over-under is set at nine right now. Nine. 
Would you guys take the over-under on nine wins for the Dallas Cowboys? Man, I feel like that's the sweet spot for them because as great as that offense is going to be and with Dak Prescott back, their defense is still questionable. Like Their defense isn't anything to write home about, and it's not like they're improving. Now, I know they have a top pick. I know they got a top pick that they could probably get one of the top cornerbacks that's going to be available, but how much does that really change things, right? We saw, uh, what's-his-face, Akuda from Detroit, who was drafted last Mm -hmm. year, and he was injured pretty much that entire season. So for nine wins, I'm going to take the under. And I think it's going to be like eight wins. So I would say under for Dallas, unless they do something incredible with this upcoming draft. I'm going to take the over. I think they're going to be a 10. And part of the reason I'm with you, Alex, I, I love their offense. I think their offense is going to be really good. Their defense is going to be I really terrible. hope they take one of the receivers just to just to go score 40 every oh week. I, if they get Kyle Pitts, it'd be amazing. Everyone bow down to Jerry Jones. <laughs> it'd be amazing. I, I just... I think part of the reason that I think they're going to be over nine is because that division's so bad. So there's some wins. Surely they can sneak out a couple when they're not playing within the division. So I'll take the over. I think they'll be right at 10. I think I'm going to take the over as well. I hate that division. Washington. Washington's going to be better than people expect. No, it's Fitzmagic. Yeah. I think they're going to be better than people expect. That's a really good defense, but the Giants are terrible. The Eagles are going to be even worse than they were a year ago. Someone I think the Cowboys. Jalen Hurts. I do not. Or I Daniel think, Jones, for that matter, either. No, so I do not. I don't, I don't trust him. Cowboys get over 10. This is going to be the one that surprises people. The Chiefs' over under for wins this year is set at 12. They may 12 for the over under. Come on now. <laughs> are you guys going over or under 12 wins for the Chiefs in 2021? I don't know. What's their freaking offensive line look like? Part of the question. Because right now they have holes on both corners of that offensive line, which if I'm Patrick Mahomes, I am I'm Russell Wilson mad right now. Like oh, can we want traded? Yeah, can we do something Stop. here? That's the report I heard, right? Stop it. Um uh, they didn't really do anything to solidify that defense either. And that was a big problem last year. I'm still gonna take the over with twelve though, because they do still have Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, and Tyree Kill. But again, I feel like that's going to be close with 12. So I'll take the over just because it's the Chiefs. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same mindset. I think the offensive line, they didn't fix it. It feels like that could be a problem. But is it going to be enough to hold them to 11 wins? I don't think so. I, I think they're a 13-14 win team. So I'll take the over. It's going to surprise you guys. You're going to take the under? I'm taking the under. Yikes. 12 is really high for this team. This is the worst team Patrick Mahomes has been on so far in his NFL career in terms of roster talent. Welcome to Cleveland, BK. They're going to be good. They're going to make the playoffs. I think they're going to win their division. I think they do it at 10 or 11 wins this year, though, instead of 14 like they did a year ago. Patrick Mahomes helps that. Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, Andy Reid, all of that's great. I think they win 10 or 11 games this year. It's a little lesser of a talent than, they, than they've than they had in the Is their schedule more difficult this year, or is it an easier one? Oh, shoot. I forgot to add in the fact that we're playing 17 games. Yeah. Ah. How did you not do that? It's important stuff right there. Yeah, like, come on, ha. man. Well, You're the NFL guy. Maybe they get right around 12. <laughs> Okay. I'll still take the under. They'll get to 11, 11 and six. God, that's not, that is not going to feel right ever. They do have a difficult schedule this year to answer your question, Alex. Uh, last one for you guys. Wow. Browns are at 10 with a 17 game schedule. That seems way low to me. Um, all right. The Patriots sitting at nine and a half, nine and a half wins for the Patriots going into next season. Remember 17 game schedule over or under from you guys. I'm taking the under. I'm taking the under. There could be 20 games in the season, and I'd probably still take the under because I don't believe in Cam Newton. I can't believe I messed this up. 
don't know. Should we like take two for this <laughs> segment and come back with that? The premise of how many games you're going to win is like changed completely by playing 17 games. Should we take two and just come back and redo the segment? <laughs> Uh, I stick with it. Under for the Patriots. I'm under two. I, I, I under don't know how two? To, no, sorry. I'm oh. under, under two. Well. G-O-O. Sorry. Under Man, also. This grammar thing. Uh, yeah, I'm under. I, to me, the Patriots are not that good. Quarterback's a problem. They went and spent big in the offseason. The defense will be better, but you can't win in this league without a quarterback, and Cam Newton's basically like not having a quarterback. Yeah, what am I missing here? I was going to say, how many wins did they have last year? Seven. So is Jonu Smith worth two wins? It feels weird to me that Nelson Aguilar and John O. Smith are suddenly going to make you into a 10-win football team. I know you're playing an extra game. Even if I gave them eight wins last year, you're still two off. Belichick is a mastermind. The dude's an unbelievable coach. This seems to me like Vegas is telling you they think that the Patriots are drafting a quarterback. Otherwise, I don't understand this number at yeah, but all. Even if they draft a quarterback, nail the under. Even if they draft a quarterback, it doesn't mean that. He's going to be a savior for him. Totally fair. He could definitely throw the ball better than Newton, though, I bet. Well, anybody can throw the ball you better than You see that arm on Mac Jones? But nobody Ooh. can run the ball better than Cam Newton. With That's Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in 10 minutes or so, i got to ask Alex if it's okay if I stop comparing the Blues to the 2019 version You're of the Blues. still doing that? We'll do that coming up in 10 minutes. Coming up next, let's dive into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie coming up in 10 minutes. I think it's time to stop comparing this blues team to 2019. We'll do that in 10 minutes, but right now let's dive into the junk drawer guys. If you could list any one person that is least likely Tanner Hendrickson. Whoa. Don't even I have to finish the it. Athlete of the group. <laughs> To yeah, go on of the group, <laughs> that's what we're referring to, right? Just it has the group. Nothing to do with athleticism. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm Any one person, take two, that is least likely to run for like a significant public office. I feel like Matthew McConaughey would be pretty high up there on my list oh, because God. of that last word that I just said. Hi. All right. All right. All right. Apparently, that's got to be the slogan, right? <laughs> I apparently yes. All right, all right, all right. Apparently, he is a legitimate viable candidate for what to become the next governor of the state of Texas. Okay, that does that surprise you? Yes. Arnold Schwarzenegger yes. became the governor of California. Matthew McConaughey is Arnold Schwarzenegger. You've been targeted for domination. <laughs> that guy. I guess that is. Who pretty is your daddy, well. and what does he do? <laughs> Matthew McConaughey, who is known for roles such as Magic Mike and Dallas Buyers Club. Great role. Great role. Yeah. How did you go to Magic Mike first? Because it's absurd. A gentleman that was in um, Tropic Thunder, like a guy that was in these roles. Good movie. Is now potentially going to be the governor of Texas. What are we doing here, boys? Someone said he's the professor at the University of Texas. Yeah, he does a acting class, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Wonderful. So good for him. background. As Matthew McConaughey once said, you know the good thing about high school girls. <laughs> I can't believe that guy's potentially going to be governor. Again, I saw Arnold Schwarzenegger become the governor of California, and I believed anything was possible at that point. The Rock is going to be our president, isn't he? 
That's going to happen. I, I would vote for him solely <laughs> from the fact that he could destroy me if he wanted to. What are we doing? 2021 hey. is wild. Matthew Mc- I feel like we are living in a simulation right also, now. Also, like, like in, I, I don't know how things are run in Texas, but Texas seems like a pretty chill kind of state, so Matthew McConaughey might hey. be the perfect person for Texas. M- maybe, maybe he's going to be great. Maybe he is the guy for the job, I mean, but I was just unaware. Personally, ma- personally, Matthew should run in Colorado. He would make a lot of sense there. Yeah. Or Washington or Oregon. Yeah. I am... I was just very surprised when I saw an article from the Dallas Morning News with the headline, Matthew McConaughey may legitimately be a viable candidate for Texas governor. He is currently ahead of their incumbent governor in the polls. Do you know what celebrity I would vote for? Who's that, Tanner? Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks can't do anything wrong. Tom Hanks, I would vote for him in governor, president, senator, house rep. Okay, we get it. Tom, the world. We get it. You love Tom Tanner. Jeez, wouldn't he be perfect though? No, I feel like Denzel would be a pretty good, uh, pretty good guy to vote in some capacity. He wasn't in Magic Mike, BK. He wasn't exactly. <laughs> That's was why Tom I feel Hanks, like he's more likely. <laughs> do either, sure? <laughs> do either of you guys have something that you would like to throw into the joke? Yeah, I have one for both of you guys. So okay. I don't know how likely you would be uh, up for this. Mystery flights are a new thing. What do you mean? So basically what you can do, there's an airline that is offering people a trip to an undisclosed location and they'll give you clues basically throughout your flight. Huh? They, they don't, you don't know what you're packing. You don't know what your itinerary is. You find that out as you were on the flight. That seems messed up. Would you be up for this? Actually? Yeah, that sounds kind of cool. You're gonna pack. You're gonna pack like shorts. Are gonna drop you off and like in like Norway I mean, you have in the middle of for everything, right? I, I, I would imagine. Is it like continental United States are the only options? I would think that they would have to do something uh, the like place, that. Uh, the, the flight is called. Um, probably pronouncing this wrong. Q A N T A S. Cantus. Cantus. Okay. It is legitimately a mystery flight. You book with them. They tell you your schedule, your estimated time of. Um. Arrival? Nope, not arrival. De- departure. Sure. Thank you. God, I almost said deliverance. That's not what that is. And as you are on the flight, they will continue to give you clues of where you are going and what your itinerary looks like. You get there, then you are there for your trip. Now, I don't know for how long you go for. I don't know what goes into it. I'm assuming it's paid for. I, I have an important question. How oh, do they, how man, do This they, goes all over the world. How do, they, how do they keep you from not knowing where you're going? Do they, like, put a bag on your head or something? Well, no, you're on a plane that's in the sky. No, I get that, but, like, I feel like you could somewhat get an idea of where you're going. Direction-wise, well, uh, maybe, again, or again, there's it's... just the subtle hint. Like maybe you look to your left, and the guy next to you has, like, this awesome Hawaiian shirt, and you go, oh, I'm going to Hawaii, probably. Well, the guy could just warm. decide to wear a Hawaiian shirt. That doesn't mean you're going to Hawaii. You could be going to freaking Norway and not know what's going on here. It looks like all of this is based out of Australia, potentially, which that would that would explain a lot. If you're okay. like going uh, uh, you're in Australia and go, you're going somewhere else in Australia, I guess the the climate there wouldn't be too different. So you kind of have a pretty good idea as to where you were going. Yeah, but no, I don't think it's just solely in Australia. It's, it's, at least the article I was reading made it seem like you could go anywhere. It's an undisclosed location. It's. It's amazing. I I would be in on that. No, I would not. I think that sounds this. great. I would not be in on this. Yeah, I don't know. Next if I would thing do you this. know, you end up in 
Russia. You don't know how the hell this yeah. happened. We've all heard the stories about Russia from Jamie Rivers. I just don't want to lose a kidney on a trip that I don't know what's going on. I think that if, if it was what I'm saying, and I think it's that, but I might be wrong here, Alex. If it is, you're starting in Australia and you're going to another portion of Australia. So at least you know, like, it's within this general vicinity. Would you then sign up? I would do that probably. I would do that, yeah. Or if you're in the like, say it's from St. Louis, and it's only you're only going to go within the uh, the the 48. Yes, the main 48. I would do that. You would then sign up for that. The, potentially? the other thing that I thought was always cool, and a buddy of mine did this once. He basically just went to the airport with his girlfriend, and they looked at the departures of kind of close to close your eyes, and then and they said, let's go something. here. I'd be up for that, but sure. I don't need to get on a plane and pack a suitcase and not know where the hell I'm going and then basically land and say, why am I in Yemen? I wasn't told that I was coming to Yemen. Yeah, that'd be problematic. Yeah. You don't know where Yemen is. 6570 is the air comfort service sex line from the 314. Guys, Australia is huge. They have multiple climate zones, to, as does the United States. You guys are not too well informed about the world, are you? Hey, I took a geology <laughs> class once. I'm not too well informed about Australia. However, I think that it is a little different than going from America to Russia, for instance. That the contingent United States, by the way, is what I was looking for there. Um, that's a little different than going from one portion of Australia to another. You guys are just going to gloss over the fact that I said I, I took a geology class once. I know. I, I, got, I got you. Too, so I thought it was fine. He was talking about geography. That's what he was getting at there. Oh. Coming up next, rocks, is Tanner. it time to stop comparing this Blues team to 2019? We'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. All right, Alex, I know that there were some conversations about, hey, you know, the Blues in 2019 were able to kind of come back. They stunk at one point, start of the new year, and then eventually we all know how that story ended. And there were comparisons to that for this year's team. Not people saying that this year's team's going to win the cup, but, you know, that is the comp if you're looking for how a team can make it back from their struggles. I think it is officially time to put that to rest. I'm kind of done hearing those comparisons because the Blues were 22, 22, and 5 at the start of their 11-game winning streak that year that turned the season around. They never lost more than two two games in regulation in a row after January 1st of that season. Two in a row. They never lost three in a row in regulation. And then at the end of the season, they won nine of their final 12 games to be able to make it into the postseason. If there's any comp for this team to that team, it would be how this team has to finish the season. That's the only thing that I think is similar between the two. But now that I'm looking at them, they've lost 14 of their last 19. They had a good three game stretch and they've really shown nothing since. I am basically done comparing the 2021 Blues with the 2019 Blues because I don't think there's anything other than the jerseys that are similar. You should never have compared it to begin with because they're two completely different teams. I, I don't care that, you know, Craig Bruby is the head coach and that you still have O'Reilly and Tarasenko and Schwartz. It doesn't matter. They're two different teams because you don't have two of the best defensemen in the league at the time for you and Alex Petrangelo and Jay Bomeister. You don't have the locker room guys like Pat Maroon and Joel Edmund. And frankly, you don't have the health that you had in 2018 and 19. Go look back at the amount of games played by those guys. There were not a lot of games missed between your top players. So they were never that team. They were never going to be that team because they don't play that style. 
we've talked about how there's kind of an identity shift right now as the Blues are trying to be more of a north-south style team, but utilizing speed more than they're utilizing body. And I think that's where kind of the miscommunication is in the lineup every night. And for me, if I'm comparing this team to anybody, which, again, it's so hard to because they're, they're it's just different player personnel. Yeah. You can't compare the team to another team. But I'd look at the 17-18 season because that was the year that the Blues started off hot, fell off kind of in the middle of the season, dealt with some injuries. I think Jaden Schwartz was one of their top goal scorers at the time, and then he went down with an injury as well as a couple of other players. Paul Stastny was out for a little bit of time for you. Um, then you... 500 hockey in the middle of the season turned it on late and then you lost that last game of the regular season to the Colorado Avalanche by one point that would be the team that I'm looking at right now that team struggled because they couldn't you know as Doug Armstrong said kill off their opponent that team kind of stood at the trade deadline said and what we're going to do with this that team really wasn't getting consistent scoring from their offense which led to that offseason moves from Doug Armstrong. Yeah. That's the team that I would look at and say, okay, that looks like 17-18 more than it would 18-19, but they never looked 18-19 to me. And that team was better than this team. The 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 team that you're referencing, they went 44 and 32 that year. The Blues right now are 19-8 and 6. Yeah, that was an 82 game schedule though with a normal there were 12 games above 500. No, I know, but what I'm saying is it had a normal off season, had a normal schedule, it had normal training camp. There's more anomalies that go into it in my opinion when they're longer seasons. I hear you, but just in terms of the end product, they were better. Like, there are a million different explanations as to why this team hasn't been better. I get that completely. It, I do think it's going to be a one-off. I think the Blues are going to be really good again next year. I think they'll be back into this window, the back end of the current window. But the 2018 team was better than the current team. And the reason why I'm, I'm saying that, Alex, is because even that team that we're talking about, the last one that missed the playoffs... Uh, that's the only time this decade, basically, that they have. That team was better than this one in terms of the end results. So it, it's just really difficult because I understand why you want to hold on to that hope, that belief that the Blues are going to turn things around. It's tough for me to hold that faith when I'm looking back and trying to latch on to something. And the only thing that even is close to it is 2018. And even that team was better than what we're currently watching. Yeah. Well, and the hard thing too, for people that are holding on hope, which I look, I still believe this is a playoff team. I just don't know how much damage they can do in the playoffs, but anything can happen. What gives you hope for that? I, in, in all seriousness, I like, I, I, you're not the only one that holds that belief. I think there are a lot of blues fans that are right there with you. Yeah. What have you seen from them other than that three game stretch? And maybe that's it, but um, what have you seen that leads you to believe that they are still going to make the playoffs? Well, honestly, the first and third periods of this stretch of games, because, I mean, they are still in these games. If people don't like hearing that, well, I mean, look at the numbers. I, I mean, a lot of these games have been tied or down by a goal, up by a goal going into the third period, and it's the second period that gets away from them. So for me, as Craig Berube says, they are close to breaking through. It's just a matter of getting consistent effort. So that's where I stand on that in, in terms of giving me hope and confidence but it's also the opponent. And I know people hear that and say, what the hell are you talking about, Ferrario? It's Colorado and Vegas and Minnesota. Right, but the Blues seem to play better against that type of competition. Arizona is a team that kind of sounds, it's, it's like Anaheim or it's like San Jose. Like they just don't drag you into the fight like those other teams do. So uh, the schedule's grueling, but I do believe that the Blues can live up to their status taking on those teams. 
Um, but again, you know, if you go to 18, 19 BK, like there was just a killer instinct by that blues team, you know, like there was a, there was a mindset that the blues, even if they were down, they won't lose. And for right now, it just feels like that when the blues get down, they can't get back up unless it's a six on five goaltender pulled. But man, you can't live a life of, Oh, we'll get back at this in the final two minutes of the game. When we pull the goaltender, sometimes it's work. Sometimes it doesn't, but I don't think that's going to work at the end of the regular season. Yeah. Six, five, seven, eight, Oh, is the air comfort service text line from the three, one, four guys. What gives me hope is that the blues have two games in hand over the coyotes and they still are four points ahead of the sharks. That's why I still believe that they're going to make the playoffs. I think that's kind of what Alex was getting at as well, is that they, they still have the team to be able to get this done. Um, that my concern would just be, I, I don't think they're going to play well against Colorado because they're a juggernaut. Now, the wrench that has been thrown into all of this is Colorado's COVID situation. We just don't know what that's going to mean for them. But they've got three games left against Colorado. They've got two more against Vegas. You're probably going to have to go something like three and two in those games. Yeah, it's more about the Blues now than it is anybody else. I don't care what what Arizona's remaining schedule is. I don't care what they did in the five games prior to playing the Blues. The Blues have to take care of their own business. And that's something that they haven't done in about six weeks now. So that that would be my concern. That's why I'm lacking. I'm leaking confidence right now with this team. Uh, with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up next, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Let's play a game of in or out on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. The Air Comfort Service text line for in or out. All right, guys, the Cardinals lineup for today is out. That's Been exciting. Released. Um, if you're somebody that wants to listen to the lineup game later today, feel free to turn your radio down for the next like 10 seconds or so. Don't Otherwise, steal here the we game go. from them because people are going to get pissed. <laughs> I know people are very upset about <laughs> it. Yeah, Barnes threatened to beat me up. Tommy Edmund is batting leadoff. You've got Goldie Arenado to three. Yadier Molina batting cleanup once again. We have a change. Batting fifth in the Cardinals order today is Dylan Carlson. Oh, he's getting closer to that two spot. Paul DeYoung is batting sixth. Matt Carpenter, seventh. Justin Williams, eighth. And Jack Flaherty is batting ninth and starting for the Cardinals today. So in or out, Alex, this is a perfectly acceptable lineup for the Cardinals today going up against a right-handed starter. As much as I don't like it, I'll say in because there really aren't any better options for them. I don't believe Matt Carpenter should be in the lineup. I would play Austin Dean um, because I think he gives you a better defensive opportunity if you put Tommy Edmond at second base. But if it's a perfectly acceptable lineup, that's the term we're using for how the season has gone. I would say I'm in on that being a perfectly acceptable lineup. I am shocked you did not say out because <laughs> I'm going to say out. Really? Why? I would, After Carpenter's performance against Nolan, I get it. Nolan was lights out, but Carpenter had three strikeouts, didn't look too competitive at the plate. I'm just trying to be easier because I know I've been Mr. Negative on Matt Carpenter. Yeah. And people say, let, 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 ease up a little bit. I've but seen I've seen the vein popping out in your neck he's there. He's 0 for 6 Multiple with like 6. Or, I'm sorry, he's 0 for 8 with 6 strikeouts in his last two games, I, but... I would have given Dean a shot. I would have gone Dean and left, Williams and right, and then I would have had Edmund at second base. Look, let's be honest. If you're having two lefties hit back-to-back, seven, eight, are you really playing the splits between a righty and a lefty? What do you mean? You are. I That's don't exactly buy, what you're doing because you're starting that, pitching. I get that, but 
the seven eight spot is where you're going to hit two lefties. I to me, it doesn't it's okay matter to play about right. splits. Carpenter striking out against lefties. He's striking out against righties. Shouldn't be in there. I would understand if you wanted to bump a lefty, or excuse me, I would understand if like you had a lefty that was hitting fifth in Carpenter's case the last couple of days, and you wanted to put a righty there, and you were going to say, okay, well we're just going to bump him down to six to go up against a lefty. You're, you got back to back lefties. It's because you think they're going to hit right-handed pitching better. Like I, not. I, I mean, maybe not, but Justin Williams has been perfectly fine. He, I'm so, fine with Williams. The same things that we're happy about Carpenter about are the same things that I, Williams I is doing I want to see well. Dean get a start. I, I After his 0 for 3, he didn't look competitive, and we didn't want to give Thomas the good old-fashioned, oh, well, yeah, gave it your best effort, go back out there in the outfield, and we sent him down to the alternate side. It should have been, Carp, great effort out there, go sit on the pine, and we're going to put Dean in the I change in my or out. Follow up in or out. <laughs> In or out, this is Matt Carpenter's final week to prove that he deserves to be in the lineup. Out. Mike Schultz, the manager. <laughs> He's still going to have a bountiful harvest. He's going to play until Harrison Bader and Tyler O'Neill are back. I and even then, even then. Tyler O'Neill's supposed to be back here in about a week. Yeah, but that happens. And then Justin Williams, for some reason, isn't performing to the correct level. And he'll be out while Tommy Edmond gets an outfield spot. I, I'll i say in. I, I think this will be Carpenter's last week to figure it out. I think I'm out on this week. I think you've got till the end of the month, though. I think that's probably around the time when we should expect this experiment to be over with if you don't see tangible results. A- Alex, to your point, the results over the weekend were not encouraging. That was the worst Matt Carpenter has looked all season long. The at-bats were non-competitive, especially yesterday. He looked like cooked carp. Alex. Cook, carp, cook, carp, cook, carp. I'm still, I'm still driving the let carp cook train. Oh, no. But he looked cooked yesterday. And so it, it, it was the right move to move him down in the order. I got no issues with him starting against a righty today. I think he should continue doing so for the next 10 days or so. If you don't seeing tan- start seeing tangible results, though, if his only hits are a bunt single and a home run at the end of these next 10 days, you can't continue putting him out there. That's when I think you will know. But for the here and now, I'm, I'm out that this is his final week. Um, but I don't have an issue with him being in the lineup there. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service X line for in or out. Guys, in or out, the Cardinals will have at least one starting outfielder in the playoffs who is not currently on the roster. I'm going to say out because I just don't know if John Mozeliak is going to make a trade. And if he does, I feel like you look at this rotation and say that needs an upgrade over the outfield because I don't know how far you can go with John Gant and Carlos Martinez in that rotation. So I'm going to say out. I'm going to say in. I... And it's tough because I think the rotation will be another one, too. It, it'll depend which one you think you have. Just think that's easier to make a move for because there's more options out there rather than the outfield. I agree, but I, I think with the outfield, you're going to look at it. And it depends on what you get, in my opinion, from Paul DeYoung. Paul DeYoung's the biggest X factor in this. If Paul DeYoung starts playing like Paul DeYoung that we expected heading into the season, then if your outfield's not producing, I think you can live with that. But if Paul DeYoung's not hitting, you're going to have to go get an outfielder. I think they would rather go get a corner outfielder now rather than go in the bidding game in free agency. So I'm going to say in on the outfield. <laughs> There's no outfielder in free agency to bid on. There's really not a whole lot of options out there. Um, I'm going to be in on this. I think that we mentioned it earlier today. I'll say it one more time. I think a guy like Mitch Hanniger, I know Alex doesn't like it. I think he's somebody that makes a lot of sense for the Cardinals. Is it the perfect 
marriage? No, maybe not. He's got some warts. He hasn't been healthy. He's not the model of health. But he is a solid player who would come in and immediately be probably your fourth best hitter. And that is a guy that absolutely helps the Cardinals. And he's coming in at the cheap. He's $3 million this year. He's probably going to be like six or seven next year in um, his arbitration process. So I think they will have at least one starting outfielder in the postseason who is not currently on the roster. Guys, I like this one from the 314. In or out, Paul DeYoung is the Cardinals starting shortstop in week one of 2022. In. You're not getting anybody else. He's cheap. There's no other options for you out there. I mean, sure, Tommy Edmond can play that spot for you, but Paul DeYoung's on this roster, whether you like it or not. He's going to be your everyday starting shortstop for the here and now, and they're going to hope that the bat gets fixed. So I'm in on this. You're not in on Soso being your everyday huh. shortstop? No, I'm not in on Soso being on this roster at some point this season. You're big on Rondon, aren't you? Yep. Me too. Uh, I'm going to be say... In because I think he is going to be your starting shortstop. The contract's team friendly. You're not going to go spend the big bucks to go get one of the big name shortstops. And I don't know if you really want a stopgap guy if you were to move on from Paul DeYoung. So I'll say in. He'll be there week one. I think he will be as well. I think that it's just too good of a contract. You guys have mentioned it. He's super cheap. He's a player that you're going to want to build around for the future, for better or worse. He needs to be better for this team. I think the place that you replace him is not at shortstop. It is instead in the batting order. Instead of expecting him to come into the next season as your fifth or sixth best hitter, maybe he's more like seven or eight on your roster. You better find somebody who can hit higher up then. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service sex line. Last one. Alex, I'm really interested in your response to this one. Guys, in or out, the Blues should expose Vladimir Tarasenko in the upcoming expansion draft. I see where they're they're coming from with this, and I'm sure there are people out there that would believe you would expose him, but I would say I'm out on this um, because I do think as much as he's not scoring since his return, you do have to take into consideration he's missed basically over a year of hockey, and he jumped back into a season with very little practice time in a year where he jumps into a new system with guys. So I would say I'm out on this because... You do not want to make the mistake of exposing of Vladimir Tarasenko, him getting back to his performance and then becoming that 30, 40 goal scorer that he's been in the past. And also, you don't have a pure goal scorer on your team if you lose Vladimir Tarasenko, because I don't believe you're getting Mike Hoffman back. And there's yeah, not going to be back. there's there's not anybody on this roster that I look at and say, yep, they're a pure goal scorer. So I would say I'm out on this. You need to keep Vladimir Tarasenko for the success of the franchise moving forward. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm out. You mentioned the pure goal scorer. I agree with you. You look at the roster and you say, not sure there's a guy on here. And we've seen this team. Vladdy hasn't been. He's been OK since he's come back, as you mentioned. But when he's not at his level, there's not that one guy you can turn to when you're struggling to score goals. And we've seen that be a problem, especially during the seven game losing streak. So I'm out. I'm out on this as well. One thing that we've got to keep in mind, though, is that contracts, because Vladimir Tarasenko is due seven and a half million dollars for the next couple of years, at least. So it wouldn't just be that you lose Vladdy, but you would also have some money to be able to spend. And what would you be able to go acquire with that? I don't know the answer. I haven't looked at next year's free agent class or what kind of nobody that's to the equipment. But if you could, I, I'm I mean, not willing to outright dismiss it anymore the way that I once did. I, I mean, you look at the unrestricted free agents for the upcoming uh, offseason. You're not getting Alex Ovechkin for any cheaper. 
You're not getting Gabriel. I would take him, though. Anybody <laughs> would take things. him. You're not getting Gabriel Landeskog cheaper. You're not getting Taylor Hall cheaper. And then from there, it's a significant drop-off. You want Ryan Nugent Hopkins? You want Tomas Tatar? Kyle Palmieri? Mike Hoffman? In my opinion... I've heard good things about him. <laughs> in my opinion, I don't think Mike Hoffman's going to want to come back here for how the season's played out. And on top of that, Mike Hoffman's going to look for at least $6 million for this upcoming season. So um, I don't see anybody out there that's going to give you Vladimir Tarasenko production um, in a full season of health. I think that's totally fair. That's probably the way they're going to view it as well. I would just be very interested to see what that would look like because it might not even be a free agent. It might be a guy that they can go yeah. acquire via trade, right? I don't, I don't know who's going to be available this offseason, but these are the conversations Army's probably having is, hey, let's not look at this as an A for B, Tarasenko versus Sonny, for instance, right? Let's yeah. not look at it as one for one that way. Let's look at it as Tarasenko versus Sonny and a free agent slash trade acquisition that we could acquire with that $7 million that we then have under the cap. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a really interesting off season because you take into consideration the expansion draft and then with the, the flat cap. And then if, you know, hypothetically this team misses out on the playoffs, there's going to have to be some significant changes by Doug Armstrong to try and get things back in this cap in this cup window. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll cross things over with the fast lane coming up next though. Wasn't the Cardinals rotation supposed to be the strength of this team? And I think it was supposed to stabilize over the weekend too, right? Somebody really smart said that. God, he's probably eating those words. We'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Can't take the second inning away, but Cruz at third, fourth, and fifth could have easily sent him back out. But uh, you know, at that point, we got to try to get back in it. So, but it was good, you know. Ground balls, really, the ball Harper hit was pretty much the only hard hit ball of the inning. I can't with this guy anymore, man. It was great. Ground balls, a lot of ground balls. Those ground balls scored two runs on you. That was Mike Schultz after the Cardinals uh, rough loss on Friday night as Carlos Martinez, a little bit of a struggle early on. He did, however, pitch three perfect innings to finish things off. How about that? He retired the last 11 batters that he saw. C-Mart for Cy Young. That's what I'm saying. The Cardinals Cardinals rotation was supposed to stabilize over the weekend. Guys, you had Carlos Martinez on Friday night against a Philadelphia offense that, as we talked to people from Philadelphia, had said, hey, this offense is not at the top of its game right now. Well, it looks that way on Friday. Then Saturday, the Cardinals get a big win, but KK only goes three innings in that game. He didn't have a super high pitch count. He was okay. I was surprised that they took him out as early as they did. And then yesterday, once again, kind of an up and down performance by John Gant. Cardinals have Jack Flaherty on the mound tonight against Washington. It's time for this rotation to start showing some signs of life, guys. Jack Flaherty has the only quality start that they have in 15 games so far this season. That is not sustainable for this team to win the way that we all thought they were going to. I didn't think that the rotation was going to be dominant. But I thought that with their rotation plus their long guys, their long inning relievers, they would have enough to be able to feel really good going into the middle of the season. Alex, it's got to get back on track starting tonight with Jack Flaherty. On the and you know, the problem is I don't, I can't put my finger on where it's at because it's not like, yes, the defense has 
ruined a couple games for the team, but it's not like overwhelmingly the defense is blowing things up. You know, the Cardinals aren't giving up as many home runs as you would think they're giving up. It's just they're not. I guess the longevity is the part that's the it's hardest point thing. Man. It's everything. It's just so hard to sit here. It's the same thing I feel like we're going through with the offense for the Cardinals. It's the same thing we're going through with the Blues. It is so confusing to try and pick apart what's going wrong because they're still getting the strikeouts. They're still getting the balls in play, but it's one inning that seems to be plaguing this team. It's not like a consistent threat. It's one inning that gets away from Jack Flaherty and five runs score. It's one inning for Carlos Martinez that six runs score on him, and then everything else is fine and dandy. It is so confusing right now with the rotation that I didn't expect them to set the world on fire, but I did expect them to be justifiable enough for this offense to to win more games and score more runs i thought they would be solid and so far this season they have not been solid at all they've been awful to start the year and if you look at just their era relative to the rest of baseball starting pitching wise they're the worst in the league the cardinals starters on the season have a 6.25 era allowed that's terrible i mean just like that, you wouldn't accept that from a really back end fifth starter. And that's what the Cardinals rotation as a whole has given them so far this year. Opposing hitters, guys, you asked me earlier today, Alex, hey, what do you think would be considered a solid season overall from the Cardinals uh, as a lineup, right? I said anything above like 250 for a National League lineup, I'd feel okay about. The Cardinals pitching, their starters, have given up a 280 batting average against. 280. That's basically like they're going up against Nolan Arenado every night in the entire lineup against them. It's unacceptable what has started off this season for their uh, starting pitching. Jack Flaherty's got to be better. Adam Wainwright has to be better. Carlos certainly needs to be better. They need KK when he has his next start to get back on track and give them depth into the games. It's so to answer your question, Alex, what's gone wrong for them? It's everything. Everything. They're not striking guys out. They're walking way too many batters. They're hitting too many batters. When they are getting the ball put in play behind them, their defense has fallen short too often this season. They're giving up hard contact, which is part of the issue for them. It is it is a ship that has holes coming at all directions right now. It, it, it is sinking, and they need somebody to be able to put a patch over at least some of those holes to make it seem like it's going a little better moving forward. And I don't know who that's going to be. I, I mean, it's got to be Jack. It's got to be Jack. He hasn't right? shown it yet. I mean, yeah, it has to be Jack, but it also has to be KK. And one start, I'm not going to judge him off because he's missed some time, so hopefully this next one gives us a little more positivity. It's got to be Wainwright. It's got to be Michaelis. Like these, these four guys were the ones that I think we viewed coming into this that could keep this serviceable. But right now, I'd say out of the last performance, the last time through the rotation, the best performance we saw was John Gant. I mean, John Gant gave up what two runs yesterday? Yeah, and he, an error. An error is what ruined it for him. He had a weird day yesterday because I wouldn't say John Gant was good. No, no. John Gant was great. But he got through five innings, and so from John Gant, if you tell me consistently John Gant is giving you five innings of two-run ball, I will accept that. That's your fifth, that's your fifth guy in the rotation. That's perfectly fine. 
but he also walked five guys and gave up five hits. And so moving forward, if he pitches that way, that's not sustainable. And he's going to give up way more than two runs in the future. Yeah. 10 base runners in, two, in five innings. That's really, really bad from him. Um, so he got lucky that he ended up only giving up two runs. But if you can get that kind of a start from him moving forward, I feel a little better of it about it. Alex, are you ready to, after the weekend, get into the Cardinals bullpen circle of trust? Are we are we updating it? Let's go ahead and give an update. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? Tell me who do you trust? It's the Cardinals Circle of Trust with BK and Ferrario. So we have already enshrined a few players into our Cardinals bullpen circle of trust. We had Gallegos in there. We had Alex Reyes in there. And we also had Tyler Webb in there. I think all three deserve to stay in. Are you guys on track with all three of those guys being in there? I'd agree. Until Webb's arm falls off, I think we stick with it. (laughs) Do you have anybody else that you would like to bring to the floor that you feel like deserve to be in the Cardinals bullpen circle of trust at this point in the season? Is there anybody else that you think should be enshrined into this circle of trust? I'm putting Jordan Hicks in. Tanner, are you good with with it? I would agree with putting Jordan Hicks in. I think we are all in favor of it. He's looked great. Dude's throwing like 101 average every time he comes out of the bullpen. And now he's going multiple innings. And I think that's been the biggest sign is that he looks like himself. He is getting some strikeouts. You saw that yesterday as well. He went one and two thirds innings. These are the types of signs that I wanted to see from uh, from Jordan Hicks early on. I'd like to see a, a few less walks. The, the command hasn't been there to the degree that I would like, but I agree with you guys completely. I think Jordan Hicks deserves to be in the Cardinals bullpen circle of can trust. I, can I present another one? No. You can present a case. No. How about Ryan Helsley? Can we put him in the circle of trust? His no. last six outings, he's gone six in a third, and he's given up one earned run. Yeah, but every time he comes to the mound, I have the Andrew Miller effect. I'm waiting for something bad to happen. Doesn't it just like... Get you go. It gets you excited, right? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's, it's, adrenaline. When, it's the same as when Carlos it's Martinez like when, was closing games, and I'm like, oh my yeah, god, this could be. That. No, we didn't. This gets could be blood great. pumping. Yeah, same with John. Uh, John no. Gant start gets the blood. I pumping. got irritable bowel syndrome from that season. <laughs> I don't need any more of that. I'm gonna have an ulcer by the end of this season if this keeps up. I'm not ready to put him in. In fact, I would say uh, Cabrera would be more likely oh, no. to me Ugh. to no. get oh, into yeah. the Cardinals you bullpen like that, circle. You trust. like that stomp after the strikeout, don't you? He looks pretty good you right like now. like that one Soto stare at the camera with the strikeout. Uh, he has allowed zero walks in his last five appearances. How many runs has he given up? How many strikeouts? Two. And two he strikeouts has or two four, runs? six, seven strikeouts in those appearances. Expected batting average of balls in play. Uh, you got, I don't know, man. You, you don't have that you, readily available. You got to go, <laughs> go scoreless in that amount of time if you want to enter my circle of trust. He's, he's given up two earned runs, so that is a bit of an issue. But I think... I would have right now, in terms of the guys that I trust, I would have Cabrera ahead of Helsley so far this season. Is that fair? Fair? Unfair? Can I present a case for Andrew Miller? No. No, no absolutely no. not. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner <laughs> Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll cross things over next. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Alex 
Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. It is BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. If you missed anything from today's show, check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, and the free 101 ESPN app, all presented by I Promise. Crossing things over with Anthony Stalter. Stalter, what's good, man? How was your weekend? Weekend was good. Got a lot of stuff done around the house and looking forward to a full week with the boys now. Got BT in for the entire time. Nice. So, yeah, we're looking forward to that. How's the, how, how's the listeners? It seemed to be uh, we, all right. DK hasn't pissed them off too much today. Well, I'm just thinking Card- you know, Cardinals lose two or three, another series loss, Blues another second period meltdown. I think we're in. We're getting closer to the point of acceptance with the Blues. Uh-oh. Really? Don't you? Really? What? No, I told you the confidence is still strong. They'll make the playoffs. I'm still amazed God, that you I have like that. like that voice you just made. That was a dad voice, Stalter. <laughs> you know it. You've made that voice before. And you, then you just don't say anything. And you just like, walk out of the room. I, I wish that I had the same level of optimism about anything that you do about the Blues. It really makes me, like, call it optimism, call it lack of sleep, whatever it may be. <laughs> I, you live off of it. You know, it's fuel. It's fuel for the brain. Hey, man, as, a, as somebody who grew up watching the Royals, I had that eternal optimism about my team every year where this is going to be the year. And then they end up losing 110 games every season. Okay, well, but... let's not mistake in this. <laughs> this optimism isn't this is going to be the year. This optimism is, hey, they're not going to miss the playoffs. How much do you guys look at the other lead like the other teams because in that, terms of i try not that, to that does that that really sets expectations for me like when i was younger it was more about like you're saying with the royals bk well i'm just gonna look at my royals right i'm yeah. just gonna dive in and well you could start talking yourself into well this team might not be as bad as people think but I think that's what you, I'm doing with the Cardinals right okay. now. I like that's where I'm at because I'm looking around baseball right now, especially in the division. Yeah. The other teams in the division are not off to a great start yeah. either for the most part. Cubs are bad. Cubs really bad. I know they had the one game where they scored what 13 mm-hmm. or whatever over the weekend, but otherwise they're hitting like 192 collectively. And so are the Brewers, by the way. Which is surprising to me, but the Brewers Stunning. have pitching. Brewers got pitching. Yeah, I was going to say. The they have guys who can give you six, seven innings, and then their bullpen is lights out. And yeah. the reason why I'm not out on the Cardinals yet is because I think they might end up having the best blend of both in this division. And it hasn't shown itself yet, but I think they might be able to get there. And so that's why I'm still more optimistic than I think some Cardinals fans are on them. With the Blues, it's about them. It's about what I've seen from the Blues as opposed to what I'm looking at from anybody else in the division. I don't need to see what the Coyotes are doing against anybody else. I'm watching the Blues for the last six weeks, and they haven't been able to get the job done. So just like schedule watching and all scoreboard watching and everything, they have to take care of business first. Well, I just just mean like when you're watching other games, you're watching other teams, it just looks different at times. I mean, when you watch Vegas, not not just against the Blues, you watch Vegas play, Mm -hmm. it looks different. Certainly so with Colorado. Yeah, Colorado's and, that team that you look at and you're like, man, I wish we had that. Yeah. Because but, like t- those players, you you can't you can't even compare anybody close to those, you right, know? Right, right. Uh Tampa, obviously, and yeah. the other if you're if you're gonna go to the Eastern Conference, you're watching Tampa play, you're watching even even a team like Carolina, like Tampa and Carolina mm-hmm. are playing tonight. Carolina's put together five wins in the last seven. They yeah. look they look pretty good. I mean, they're you look you you kind of get the gauge of the rest of the league. And then you compare it to the Blues, you compare it to the Cardinals, you're like, all right, I have a pretty good understanding of where you're at. Yeah. I mean, the Cardinals, I don't really know what we're watching right sure. now. I'll just be honest. I, it's the when, first part of the season. It was the same with the Blues that first month. Sure. But when you're scoring 14 runs one night, zero the next, or over the weekend you score 
you know, what was it on Saturday, nine or whatever yeah. wound up yeah. being yesterday, Aaron, Aaron Nola shoved. Aaron Nola is going to shove against a lot, of, a lot of teams. But you get that inconsistency. I don't know yet what we're watching with the Cardinals. I don't, outside of a team that, again, is very inconsistent. And I think it's fair to say that they're they're slightly above average as of right now. And when you're slightly above average or average, this is how you get the mix of wins and losses and the frustra- frustration set in. You you got some holes on your roster, and you've got some good aspects that can carry you at times. That's That really is what we've seen thus far in, in 12 games or 13 games, whatever it's been. I'm sure you guys are going to talk about this a lot coming up today on the Fast Lane. What else do you guys have today? We're sticking a lot of Cardinals and Blues today. I mean, Jamie will try to dive into why the Blues are struggling in the second period. We'll get BT, BT's take on, you know, KK's return to to the starting rotation. I thought Gant looked good. Yeah. You know, Carlos Martinez, what what are we watching with I really Carlos am interested now? to hear what BT has to say about that because he, he had kind of a similar start to what we've seen so far. Yeah, from three, three outings thus far. I know he's had the bad inning each time. DeYoung slips it short. Carpenter doesn't come up with that play's got to be made at second base. Yep. Dylan Carlson loses the ball in center field. It's been kind of a weird start for Carlos Martinez, so I'm looking forward to getting BT's take on that too. That's coming up from 2 to 6. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 right here on 101 ESPN. Well, it was good, you know, ground balls. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast, powered by I Promise. How would you like to come home to a bartender who will fix you any cocktail you want? I'll have an old-fashioned. I'll have a margarita. Now you can with the Bartesian Home Cocktail Maker. Bartesian is a sleek machine the size of a coffee maker that makes premium cocktails at the touch of a button. Choose from over 50 different cocktails, from classics to the most exotic premium cocktails served in the best bars today. You'll always get freshly mixed, perfectly balanced cocktails with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. And now get Bartesian's best Black Friday deal ever at bartesian.com holiday. Entertaining? The Bartesian is ideal for parties. No need to stock all kinds of individual mixers for complicated recipes. Every guest gets the cocktail of their choice in seconds. The Bartesian makes a wonderful gift for anyone who loves a fine premium cocktail. Now get Bartesian's best Black Friday deal ever. It's available right now, only at bartesian.com holiday. That's B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N dot com holiday for Bartesian's best deal ever, only at bartesian.com holiday.